and welcome aboard. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> the battleship pretension. It sounds, is it? She's Julia Sezdovich. And she panicked. Saboteur. You sabotaged the show. You did after all. <laughs> my inner saboteur was the saboteur all along. So yeah, that's Julia Sezdovich and Scott and I. I'm David Bax. This is Battleship Pretension. Tyler Smith is on assignment. Um, we have a lot to get to today uh, because this is an annual episode and we have a, a, a guest, same guest we had. It's the same lineup as, as a year ago because nothing at all has changed uh, for most of us in terms of also, our day-to-day lives. Like dream team, obviously. Like, you know, <laughs> this is the crew you want. Yeah. Um, I... I personally, I like when my co-host Tyler Smith is on the show. I'm just but, saying like uh, absent that, you know, right, right, right. When you got to call in some pitch hitter, pinch hitters, pitch hitter, pinch hitters. Yeah. Pinch hitters. Some backups. Yeah. They pinch it. They don't pitch it. Right. They pinch. Those hit. are opposites. No. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they do hit. Pitches, yeah. Pitch hitters. I mean, they that normally do. Yep. That's just how yeah. that works. Yeah. Yep. Well, He's before I get. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's a roster full of pitch hitters. <laughs> Before I get to our guest, I want to tell our listeners, I think I want to tell about tweakedaudio.com. I don't know. I haven't been on the show in so long. I don't know if we're still, I'm assuming we're still doing this. Um, but um, tweakedaudio.com, you see, is where you go for professional quality earbuds in a variety of stylish styles and colorful colors. They look great. They sound great. Um, Tyler and I use them each and every day of our lives. Uh, today, I was listening to the Staples Singers. Because uh, R.I.P. Um, Purvis Staples, who, who who died this week, um, so I was really enjoying listening to the Staples singers and and uh, honoring the memory of uh, one of them, the great Purvis Staples. Uh, and it sounded great on my tweakedaudio.com earbuds that are available at a low low price at tweakedaudio.com. But if you use the offer code pretension at checkout, you get one third off that low low price and no shipping charges. So please go to tweakedaudio.com and use the offer code pretension. If debit is your go-to card, Discover thinks it's time you get rewarded too. So check out Discover Cashback Debit, a game-changing checking account with cashback on everyday debit card purchases. That's right. Cashback isn't just for credit cards anymore. Whether it's a movie date, flea market find, or midday latte, you can start earning cashback. And did I mention there are no fees, period? Check out transaction eligibility and terms at discover.com slash cashback debit. Discover Bank member FDIC. Scott, Julie? Yes. Let's get into it, shall we? Absolutely. This past weekend, Mother's Day weekend, weird weird uh, scheduling decision there but most weekend was the uh the i guess second annual at home edition although they're not calling it the, that this year of the tcm classic film festival we watched a bunch of movies and so did our guest who is joining us again uh who helped us wrap up the first at home uh tcm classic film festival and that's uh nerdist.com's kyle anderson hello everyone happy to be back to talk about old movies i watched on my couch <laughs> that's uh what we've been doing a lot this year i think um especially yeah. these two weekends uh but uh yeah did anyone else um have mother's day conflicts with <laughs> i did yeah i was straight up going to the bay area to surprise my mom uh there were there was surprise there was tears there was happiness it was good um you know it's kind of actually fitting that it conflicted though because like the average tcm fest audience a lot of moms out there 
Yeah. Yeah. About it. Uh, yeah, I, I guess I was just thinking, uh, you know, Comic-Con got a lot of flack for scheduling their like mini Comic-Con thing for Thanksgiving weekend. But I guess uh, TCM didn't get quite the same uh, blowback for conflicting with Mother's That's Day. Maybe for, maybe for the reason Mother's you're Day. saying. Yeah, people don't usually travel for Mother's Day or yeah. like. And people aren't traveling for the TCM Fest this year, whereas I gather they are to some extent for Comic-Con. That's the idea in November. Um, yeah, so there is a direct conflict like TCM okay. Fest. You could just watch it with your mom on the couch. Have a nice little Mother's Day. Yeah, there you go. I, I, I guess you're. I guess you're right. I uh, saw. I talked to my mom on the phone. I saw my saw my mother-in-law in person on Mother's Day, and she said she'd been watching a bunch of TCM. So, uh, how about that? There you go. Doing it right. But that's, uh, I'm sure we'll cover some other. Uh, Mothers, I'm sure some of the characters in these movies are, are, are mothers and we'll try and uh, it. tie it into the, <laughs> the thing. But here. But, I also uh, want to point out, because you mentioned that this is the second year they did it at home, but they, it was very different from last year because last year they were throwing it together at the absolute last minute. This year, they were not. So it was much more organized. It had exclusive content. It had interviews. It had intros. And so I just want to like, make that differentiation that i think it was a very different experience from last yes, year that's that's a good point um because uh yeah they had time to curate this festival whereas last year they basically just picked a bunch of stuff that had screened at past festival festivals and and aired it i will say the i'm, I'm very much for many reasons looking forward to going back to an in-person tcm fest one of the main reasons i realized you know sometimes things about the pandemic and, and endless lockdowns and quarantines make you uh, realize what you actually cherish about something. Um, having an actual schedule with multiple screening yeah. rooms means it, there's some, there, there's some self-selecting that has to be done. Yep. You know, you there's can only see voices. One, yeah. Whereas here, like ostensibly there's nothing conflicts with anything else. I could have watched everything. So I, uh, it took me so long and so many different like drafts of a schedule come to come up with, uh, what I ended up coming up with in, t- <laughs> in terms of what I watched. Um, I ended up, yeah. I ended up basically what I ended up doing is, um, sort of engineering conflicts. Like I took the, I, I took the schedule that was airing on TCM and then I took everything that was on HBO max and I sort of made a schedule out of that. And then, eliminated stuff by pretending it conflicted. This is an incredibly David Bax approach to <laughs> a festival you can watch literally. Anytime you, you have to create a problem that you can solve. <laughs> Just what? Yeah. And I also mean, yeah. almost everything was still available as of today. Yeah. I yeah. was watching stuff last night. And but the flip um, yeah. side though is like, yeah. you're not going to get shut out of theater four. you can, you can watch everything you want. Yeah. Yeah, Julie, which is nice. Julie's bringing the standby line perspective here. Yeah, as the rest someone, of those past goers was like, come on, let us in. Yeah. As someone who's always living the standby life, there were some things they showed and I was like, Oh, in a normal year, this would be in theater four. And I wouldn't even make an attempt because it wouldn't matter. It wouldn't be worth it. But you know, so there, there is, that is nice. At yeah. Least. Yeah. That is part of the, that's part a of big the portion of it. My first ever, yeah. literally my first TCM experience was being the first person shut out of a movie. Like the, <laughs> the person in front of me got to go in and they said, sorry, you can't come in. And I can't for the life. I, I can't remember which movie it was. Maybe people with a better, you guys with a better memory of what, what played the TCM fest in 2016. Cause I, it's one of two movies, which are very different movies but have very similar titles i can't remember if the movie i got shut out of was one two three or one potato two potato 
It was probably one potato, two potato, because one, two, three is much more popular and well-known. And um, one potato, two potato was a little rare, and the rarities tend to be what shut people out. I see. Oh, because it would have been a smaller room. Yeah. yeah. Right. Whereas one, two, three probably would have been something in like the Chinese or whatever. Yeah. So it was probably one potato, two potato that I didn't get into. Uh, that was my first experience. My first TCM Fest experience right passage. not getting into a movie. Yeah. Um, never made that mistake uh, 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 again. Came close to not getting in a few years ago to the taking of Pelham one, two, three, because I came out of Black Stallion and they weren't giving the, uh, the, the cue cards out yet. And yeah. I was like, I got time to get a taco. It took me too long to get a taco when I came back and the line was mm. so long, but I barely made it in. Anyway, I don't know. We could like do what we, Tyler and I did uh, our Comic-Con, uh, the preview, quote unquote preview this year was just Comic-Con memories. I could do a whole episode about TCM memories, but oh, for sure. we've got too much to talk about to begin with. Does anyone else have anything they wanted to get off their chest before we jump in? I was just going to say that this year kind of proved with my personal choices. I went ahead and only watched movies I hadn't seen before with one exception, um, which we will get to, but um, uh, because if I were go, but because I was like, I'm at home, I, I should watch things I haven't seen or don't have easy access to or something like that. But if I, if it were in person, I would have a hundred percent seen some of the bigger movies that I love on the big screen. Cause mm -hmm. I've never seen them before. So um, this, I mean, like I, I used it to my benefit to try to make it better than just, I'm still watching movies at home, but, but you know, last year, because it was all just on TV, we didn't really have much of a choice in terms of what to watch. Either we did, we watched it or we didn't watch it. Whereas this, there was so much about picking stuff. And so yeah. because there was so many things that I'd already seen, I, I made a conscious effort to only only watch things that I hadn't seen before. So yeah, I did, um, I, I did the same, which I wouldn't do in person. Um, so uh, uh, Scott had the idea, which I like to, uh, uh, because there's no schedule, we can't go by, uh, you know, chronology. Uh, we're going by release chronology. We're uh, starting with the oldest movies and working our ways way up to the newest ones, uh, which means I don't have anything to say right away because for the first time, for the first TCM fest in years, I watched no silence this year. Yeah. I usually try to fit in at least one silent. Skipped it this year. Such a Philistine. Well, yeah, so first, first are the Melies shorts and also the documentary, the Melies mystery that accompanied them. Yeah, so I watched all five of the shorts. Um, two of them were a minute long, and then two, uh, three of them were more in like the 15 to 20 minute range. And I wrote in my notes, this is a direct quote, this is some wild shit. Because like, so you to put yourself <laughs> in like the correct era, it's like George Melies, he's like a silent film pioneer. He was active in the 1890s through 1910s, most famously directed a trip to the moon. But like, I don't know that people talk enough about how out there some of this stuff is. Martin Scorsese made a whole movie about it. Well then, terrific. But like, you know, you look at what people at the time like what his contemporaries were doing and like Thomas Edison, you know, good for him, but he was like filming 30 seconds of like people walking down the street and calling it a day. Okay. One of these films, it's a minute long. It's called the infernal cauldron and it features demons throwing people into a cauldron, burning them alive and then seeing their ghosts yeah. for a minute. Like, and it's one. in, I was like, this is nuts. This is 1903 and this is bananas. Um, there was also one called The Old Hag. And I literally, I wrote this down because this was blowing my mind. So on screen simultaneously, you have a giant owl, a giant dragon, a giant frog, and two giant snakes. This is all at once and it's full frame. <laughs> now, these are not 
it's, you know, it's kind of crude because they're like paper cutouts. It's people in costumes. But like if you kind of adjust for the time, that's like a Michael Bay level of insanity, of overkill, because they weren't moving the camera or anything. It was just let's pack as much in the frame as we can. And it's like a lot of fun. They're also they're all hand painted, which is what it sounds like. It's people sitting down and painting the tiny little bits of every single frame. And it's it's beautiful. It's like the colors are just like really amazing. Um, and uh, what else? Oh, there's one called Four Troublesome Heads, where a guy looks like he's taking his head off repeatedly and like cloning it. Um, so that's a good time. There's also um, one called The Impossible Voyage, which is sort of like a trip to the moon, but they go to the sun. Um, and at one point I laughed out loud because they're like riding in this trolley and they ride through someone's dining room and just completely mess up their dinner and all the dishes go everywhere. Um, but yeah, it's they're really fun. They're imaginative. And if you just like think of how old they are, it's not even that much grading on a curve. They're still really entertaining and beautiful and crazy. So, yeah. Yeah, there yeah. was a, a Flickr Alley Blu-ray a few years ago called Melier's Fairy Tales that has um, it has it has Infernal Cauldron and it doesn't have uh, some of the ones you you mentioned. It does have one called The Diabolic Tenant that I really liked. I don't know if that was in your in the TCM thing. No, but, uh, yeah, no, but uh, all right, mm. moving on to the Melier's documentary, I guess. Yeah, which is new to be clear. Yes, so the Melier's. Yes, it was. Uh, brand new as of uh this airing i think it was the premiere of it um but um serge bromberg who um is a big um uh proponent and uh a kind of chronicler of silent cinema uh was one of the co-directors and it basically tells the story and leonard malton um narrates it but it basically tells the story of george melier's kind of career and how at the end of it he set all of his film reels on fire because he was so kind of despondent about what happened to his career. And the mystery is how do we have all the movies? And so obviously we go through the history, but also kind of figure out like who had been, who had been duping the the copies of the film. And that's the reason we have them and stuff like that. But it goes really into like how Pathé was just whole cloth ripping off Melier's movies. And like, they put them side by side, like Pathé would put out a movie it would be called something slightly different, but it's basically a crappier version of the George Melies movie. Um, and, uh, and then once Melies ran out of money, Pathé started paying for him to make more movies that they could rip off. <laughs> they started like actually, you know, footing the bill for this stuff. And also um, his brother went to America and uh, made some, uh, silent movies and those were all really boring they were all just like he did like just westerns and like whatever was whatever was popular he was just doing that um in america whereas george Melies was you know all the stuff that julie was saying like actually doing all this artistry and like create you know he was a stage magician and like turning that style of magic kind of and fancifulness into films and so it was a really good i mean it was only maybe about an hour long um but a really good documentary which I hope that they either release on something or, or whatever soon, because uh, uh, it was good. I really liked it. Yeah. The next one is uh, Ernst Lubitsch's So This is Paris, which I have seen twice before, including once at TCM Fest. Uh, mm. I think they screened it in 2017. I saw it the year before that at CineFamily. And it's been like kind of popping around the rep circuit several yeah, times. Yeah, I, I saw it probably three years ago or so at uh, the Billy Wilder, the it was UCA film television archive with um, live accompaniment. 
Um, and also uh, Peter Bogdanovich was in the audience. Classic. Um, yeah, I mean, I was so I was excited that it finally got this restoration and an actual synced score because it's never been available on DVD at least, and I don't think VHS. Um, so it was cool to kind of trace that uh, path of it, like starting to screen in LA of it, and then clearly caught someone's eye, and you know they fronted for the restoration and all that. Um, but this is just a fantastic film. It's one of my three favorite Lubitsch films, and I think like a lot of people, I always wondered how valuable Lubitsch's silent films would be because he's so good with dialogue and like that kind of mood and stuff. But all of that wit like totally translates to the silent uh, form. And he finds like the same kind of rhythm with actors and the same kind of, even the dialogue comes across as witty, even though it's taking place on intertitles and stuff. Um, yeah, this is a big favorite of mine. It's only an hour long, but it packs so much into it. I know Kyle, this is probably your first time seeing it. What were your feelings about it? Yeah. Yeah. And I know, and you had mentioned, um, I, you know, there was a, a couple of the things that I ended up watching were ones that I saw you and other people just tweeting about. And I was like, Oh, I've never seen that Lubitsch. And actually this was the first of his silence. I don't know if that there are more that are readily available, but it's the first one that I've ever gotten to watch. Um, and yeah, I thought it was great. And one of the things that st stood out to me is that, you know, you, I've seen quite a few silent comedies of various types and stuff and nobody in this, it was really funny, but nobody's mugging. Like everybody is like an really? actual character. And that's one of my favorite things about it is like these two couples are completely believable and they do silly. I mean, it's, it's a silly story. Um, but I completely like bought into the both relationships and the kind of like the almost kind of wife swapping that goes on. Like it's, it was just really fun. I really, um, and then of course the end kind of like club scene, which is kind of the, you know, the thing that it's most famous for is this like choreographed Charleston, um, dance, which is as, as chaotic as you wanted it to be. And, uh, and I thought it was great. So yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm, uh, uh, I thank you, Scott. I'll thank you again before the end of, <laughs> about other things that I only watched because you tweeted about it. I'm remembering that this movie came up, uh, Scott and Julie, when you, when we did a movie, an episode on dance movies and in, in, yeah. in late 2020, we did talk about that scene that Kyle just, just referenced. Um, I also remember liking some of the fantastical stuff, like the guy getting beat up by his own cane. Um, and, and, uh, and like shoving down his throat and yeah, and him like shrinking <laughs> down when his wife is like, yeah. Chewing him out. <laughs> Yeah, it's terrific. It's probably still up on HBO Max. A lot of this stuff is still on there, um, but hopefully it'll get a Blu-ray release soon too. Okay, so we're uh, okay. Nope. So I didn't watch any Silence, but I've seen multiple Silence that we talked about. So I feel like my uh, reputation is a uh, no one's calling you out. Like this is fine. You don't understand. Or maybe you do understand. I am always calling myself out. It's true. I'm just trying to alleviate the pressure. Yeah. So we are uh, right. into the talkies. Yeah. Into yeah. the talkies. So we're, we're uh, into, I guess, the, the TCM, what I've learned, the TCM crowd's uh, favorite uh, subset, which is the pre-code movies. We've got a couple, of, a couple of pre-codes here, uh, starting with Tay Garnett's Her Man, which, uh, which, which, was which multiple. Not multiple about multiple. a man named Herman, which took, I mean, it took me forever in the movie to yeah, figure that out. Really Who's Herman? When's Herman going to show up? <laughs> yeah. Uh, the movie's called after him. Is it just like <laughs> waiting for Godot or something? I don't get it. <laughs> but yeah, this movie is a vibe. 
a capital V vibe because it's not just a pre-code story. It's not like, oh my goodness, they're doing scandalous things. It's like a whole milieu. Like it's set almost entirely in a smoky bar in Havana full of criminals, prostitutes, and drunks. Like it doesn't get more like CD and pre-code than that. And it's, it's very light on plot. Like very, like they repeatedly show two drunk guys fighting over a hat. Like it happens more than once. Um, but it's just you're just there to soak up the vibe, honestly. Yeah, I mean, it's really. Yeah, it's, it's when I was when I sorry uh, when I was writing it up for my 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 little write up on the on the website, I started describing the plot and realizing like, oh, what I'm describing sounds like uh, like a heavier melodrama, but this movie is like a it's like a hangout comedy. We're like we're we're we spend as much time with the plot as we do with like you said the two drunks fighting over a hat or one upping uh, each other at the slot machine. Um, <laughs> Uh, yeah, I, I, I really in, enjoyed this hands down. The funniest was speaking of fighting over the hat. Funniest moment in the movie is when the one drunk guy with the hat falls into the ocean and is like, help. I can't swim. The other guy jumps in after him, presumably like, uh, essentially to help him, but instead just puts on the hat and swims away. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. And it's also it's gorgeous because you think of the night, the early 30s as like there were a lot of really stiff talkies, you know, like they're still figuring out the technology and it kind of sounds bad and the camera doesn't move. But like the camera's moving all the time. It's really fluid. And the restoration, it's it's a new restoration, yeah. I think. And it looked gorgeous. It looked amazing. Yeah. And they have these great like crowd scenes where the camera's like weaving amongst this yeah. huge crowd which like a lot of these port movies are very much about like how isolated it's like five people in the corner playing cards or something. But this is like this massive bustling port full of all kinds of characters. And we get the feeling like this is probably just one story amongst many happening over this weekend. But like a lot of port movies, you know, it kind of has that vibe of like, there's, pe there's people there who are stuck there who just want to get out and people there who are drifting by who just want to stay there for much longer and just get drunk all the time. And that constant kind of push pull of like people's, being there too long and not enough, but there's not really a good like society to build around this. It's just people coming and going. And I really liked um, the male lead whose name is Phillips Holmes. So yeah. Phillips plural and then Holmes. Um, he yeah. was a, apparently a pretty popular leading man in the day, but it, his career declined quickly and then he died really young. Um, He's very charming, very attractive. Um, rather amusingly, he only wears one shirt through the whole movie, which progressively disintegrates till the <laughs> yeah. very end where it's basically, he looks like the Hulk. Great touch though. Um, oh yeah, very into it, very here for it. <laughs> I wasn't as much into the female lead. Um, it's this actress named Helen Twelve Trees, great name. Um, she also had a pretty short career. And like, I mean, the role is pretty thinly written and it required a lot of abrupt about emotional switches. So it was like asking a lot of any actress, but I don't know if she was quite ready for it. Um, but maybe I'm minority opinion there. So no, you mentioned, lie. you mentioned her short career. Did you look up her sad life? Oh yeah. Um, like, yeah. It was pretty bad. Uh, yeah. Died of an apparent suicide uh, in her forties. Yeah. Um, but also I looked her up because I was like, I wonder what kind of name 12 trees is. And it was her first husband's name. And this guy was a piece of work <laughs> who at one point, attempted suicide by jumping out of a Manhattan apartment building and hit multiple awnings in a car on the way down and survived oh. his suicide attempt and then later died because he was accosting some other woman on the street. Another man came to her rescue, pushed Clark's 12 trees over who then bashed his head on the curb and died later of his, uh, uh his, his injuries. So, uh, that's yeah. a little on the nose. Yeah. <laughs> Jeez. Um, so, uh, yeah, crazy story. And, uh, Poor Helen, Helen 12 Trees didn't have it much better, I guess, af even after uh, her 
a handful of a first husband uh, passed on. <laughs> but okay. good movie. Hopefully the restoration gets like, you know, put out on yeah. a disc or something. One restoration that is out on disc is the one movie we all watched. Which all is, four of us. Yeah. Dr. X, Michael Curtiz's 1932 horror film. I know it was just released on Warner Archive disc. Uh, I'm sure the disc looks, looks even better than the uh, transfer over TCM's airwaves, but it looked uh, damn gorgeous. Yeah, and it's two-strip Technicolor, which yeah. was very short-lived because they had only figured out how to do two of the colors. So everything is just shades of orange and green. And it's really funny to me that they, like, figured that out. And then they're like, yeah, that's enough colors. We'll run with that. Like, I mean, I think, honestly, the only reason... <laughs> and then finally, someone in the early 30s was like, blue. Have you ever a blue? <laughs> I think, honestly, the only reason it even lasted as long as it did is because white people key turn key differentiator here white people's flesh tones look pretty sure okay i think if they hadn't been able to figure out white people flesh tones like it would not have been a thing mm -hmm. at all um but you know the background looks kind of funny but the people mostly look normal because they're all white so. and when they steer into it like yeah Faye sure. ray has this awesome green dress that's like the greenest dress you've ever seen at least yeah. you know pre-atonement or whatever yeah uh, I, 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 uh, this is a mild digression that'll come back to what uh, you just said. When I talk about like new movies with a actors and, and actresses who are still with us, I'm often a little bit cautious about being too like purient or objectifying. I kind of lose some of that when the actresses uh, are, are, are dead and gone. So this is all to say that Feyre is super hot in this movie. <laughs> And she wears a lot of uh, uh, great outfits. Not, that's not a minority opinion. So it's a weird yeah, but it's, standard it's not, of yours. No, but it's, it's not something uh, I usually. Uh, <laughs> but I feel. I will safe only objectify the dead. <laughs> exactly. exactly. It's good to have standards. Um, and it's. I would say for the most. I mean, it's like a seventy-six minute movie. It's a bit slow, but like the production design is really cool, like mad scientist stuff. And the ending really pays off, yeah, I would so say. It's just like murder mystery. And so that first like 15 or 20 minutes of the movie is just introducing it to the most obvious suspects in the world. <laughs> but like the main doctor guy, the doctor X of the title is like, none of these guys are suspect. They're my friends. And they go meet them. And they're the weirdest goddamn doctors <laughs> you've ever met in your life. And you're like, all of these guys murdered somebody. I mean, maybe not these people that were investigating, but they've definitely killed people before. For yeah, sure. it's like a mad scientist convention. Yeah. Um, yeah. The, the, the hard part is yeah. not convincing yourself that one of them did it. It's figuring out which one. Yeah. Um, and even uh, the guy's butler was like a total weirdo. I was like, maybe it's the butler the whole time because he's like creeping on everybody. Oh, yeah. Real weird butler. Um, and then because this is Warner Brothers, they were legally obligated to have a fast talking reporter in it. Um, so Lee Tracy plays that role and he actually would go on to become known for that archetype, but this was the first time he did it. I mean, I like him. I wasn't as big on him here only because he's mostly playing like startled. And I feel like that's kind of only funny in Looney Tunes. It's like the shaggy role. It's yeah. yeah. Where, and so I was thinking about, so this movie was successful. So a year later, Warner Brothers made The Mystery of the Wax Museum, which has the same stars, the same director, like sort of a similar premise, a wisecracking reporter, two strip technique, like it's very similar. And in that, Glenda Farrell is the wisecracking reporter. And she's just like wisecracking the whole time. She's hmm. just like, this is ridiculous. What are we even doing? And I think that is more effective. So it, it's hard not to compare them because they're so similar. So I didn't really like the kind of, like you said, the shaggy of it all. <laughs> well, maybe um, I'm a simpleton, but I, I liked uh, uh, Lee Tracy. 
um, being startled by things. <laughs> it kept getting me. I was like, that's funny. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's pretty good. But like I said, only because I, I had yeah. seen, you know, Glenda Farrell doing it. But yeah. Kyle? I really loved this. I thought it was great, um, Dr. X. And because of that, um, and I'd never seen a two strip Technicolor before. I thought it was beautiful. And um, obviously it was um you know, newly done. So it looks as good as it ever could. And so because of that, after like subsequently I watched mystery of the wax museum oh, okay. and then the third of Michael Curtiz's, um, uh, films, uh, the walking dead, which is actually only available, uh, pirated. I, oh. I didn't pay for piracy, but I did succumb to a pirate, a pirate copy that was online. Um, and I, I do have to say that like, um, the walking dead is pretty boring. Uh, for the most part, uh, despite Boris Karloff being in it. But um, I loved everything about Dr. X so much more than Mystery of the Wax Museum, with the exception of, I thought Glenda Farrell as the wise talk, wisecracking reporter was so funny and so good. And I wish that that character had been in both and that it had still been uh, like uh, a, a, a romance between, <laughs> between Fay Ray and whoever the reporter was. I would have, that would have been awesome, but they didn't do that. Obviously it was the thirties, but, um, but yeah, I thought, I thought this was great. I thought Lionel Atwell was great. And, uh, the, once you find out what actually is going on, it's one of the weirdest like reveals oh, yeah. of all time. Yes. Synthetic <laughs> like, flesh. Hard to agree. Uh, <laughs> uh, synthetic yeah, I, um, I, I, I liked, uh, the, the Michael Curtis, uh, uh, of it all. Um, you know, there's, uh, multiple, like Scott was talking about being introduced to these weirdo characters. There's, I think more than one we get introduced to, like with them, there are shadows like projected on like a, yeah. a, a curtain, which is like a very Michael Curtis type of like almost cartoonish, uh, move. Um, I didn't know that I like the movie is described as a horror movie. It's, but it's, a, it's a comedy. I feel like it's a comedy first, uh, um, and the last thing I'll, I'll, I'll say, you, you yeah. mentioned this is the beginning, Julie, you mentioned this beginning of uh, Lee Tracy's character archetype. I also guess chronologically, this is kind of the beginning of Fay Ray as a scream queen. Because this yeah, is, there's they, not a lot of horror. that in the intro. Oh, yeah. did they? I didn't watch yeah. any of the intros. Um, that's the one uh, thing I prefer <laughs> at home. I don't have to watch the Harsh. intros, but uh, I'm sorry. I just, came to, <laughs> I just come to watch movies. I like to watch movies. I don't necessarily like to watch people talk about movies when I'm there to watch a movie, but I know that's just me. Anyway, um, but anyway, uh, I can see how she came by the... Uh, reputation as a quote-unquote scream queen because they keep having her scream in this movie yeah like yeah. literally she walks in and her dad is just like nothing real scary has happened he's just like up on a high ladder <laughs> yeah. and she's like, that was the one that was like was anyone startled by that yeah. surely he's looked in his library before <laughs> i think they just michael curtis just realized what kind of a, a tool he had there with sure. her with her scream and was like let's let's get it out as, as much as possible uh are we moving on to the uh the, yeah, first, the first of many just me titles first yeah. solo david well i won't say much about this one unless it uh causes a scandal but uh, i watched 1935's <laughs> top hat which was I, I try to balance at tcm fest between like seeing some like cool stuff that i didn't know about beforehand and using tcm to fest to kind of like fill in some blind spots and top hat seems like a very famous movie that i had had, had never seen um and I get why it's a Fred Astaire, Ginger Rogers movie and it has them dancing a lot. And when they're dancing or when anyone is dancing, really, the movie's super cool. And uh, everything else in the movie seemed kind of like uh, stodgy and second rate. Am I, uh, is this a scandalous opinion about Top Hat? I, mean, I remember 
never liking the screwball of it all. Just everyone's always in the wrong room and stuff. But that's just me. I mean, I don't know. Yeah, that's kind of how I remember. It. It's been probably ten years oh, since sure. I've seen it. Yeah. At least, so I, I mean, I like that stuff on paper, but it just it, it just felt like uh, 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 an echo of better versions of 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 farce or better versions of the like yeah mismatched couple sort of uh uh you know uh, romantic comedy and, and and things like that um but yeah again it's got these incredibly lavish sets and it's got fred astaire and ginger rogers and others uh dancing uh around them there's one the one dance number that they're not even in um that was one of my, it was my favorite of the ones they're not in but uh it's a team of male and female dancers who are all like paired up and sashed to the like satin sashes tying them together at the waist so as they're dancing they're like spinning away from and back toward uh one another connected by these sashes and like um uh mark sanders is director shoots from uh in the soundstage shoots from very on up high so you can see these uh the the choreography and the and the sashes and stuff that, that was cool there's cool stuff in it i get why people who like movies with dancing in it like top hat but i kind of felt uh left cold by uh, a lot of the non-dancing stuff i mean that's fair i mean to me i think i just like i'm not maybe holding the screwball aspect of it to the same standard as like bringing a baby or something but i just see it as more like this is a friend ginger movie this is what we're here to do so but i just like watching ginger rogers do anything so yeah, that's that. that's cool with me oh yeah 100 <laughs> percent on board with that as long as we're talking about attractive dead women you know <laughs> there's yeah. an album title yeah <laughs> attractive dead women <laughs> all right uh, next up is a sh very shift sharp, sharp shift in tone indeed um it is black legion which is a humphrey bogart movie from 1937 um the black legion was a real white supremacist hate group that spun off from the kkk and was focused predominantly in the midwest um so there was a real case in 1935 where they murdered a guy and got caught and it kind of like led to the group's downfall. So they were making this movie a couple of years after that had happened. Um, it's intense and I really enjoyed it. Um, it's one of um, Humphrey Bogart's early roles. And what I think is really fascinating about watching these stars in early roles is that they're like, persona that you know them for hasn't really solidified yet so they still are kind of testing things out and doing different things so obviously he's cool he's humphrey bogart that's not up for debate but he also he breaks down sobbing multiple times and at other times he is genuinely terrified and that's something that you start to look toward the 50s and stuff you're not really going to get as much yeah i mean to give some context he plays a factory worker who uh believes he's due for promotion only for that promotion to be taken away by a polish man um and that kind of triggers him to uh join up or pay more attention to some white supremacist rhetoric he's hearing around the factory and gradually joined up with the Black Legion. So Bogey is very much the bad guy here. And the film um, is very good about like portraying what draws these guys in and while instantly making him seem like super pathetic as a result. Like I, I actually thought of Black Klansman a bit in this where like the whole gang is just made up of guys who aren't very good at their jobs and just like, which want to hang out with other guys who kind of suck, but want to feel like they're owed something. Um, so it does a really good job of kind of sending up the organization, even while like very clearly portraying its threats and the danger of it. 
Yeah. And especially because like, you know, if you look at certain like film history from that era, you think of like birth of a nation and you think of like some of the movies of the thirties that were kind of like soft peddling the civil war. It's kind of nice to watch a movie from 1937 where this hate group is unequivocally evil. There is no wiggle room. There is no ambiguity. And they're not just evil for, you know, the racism and the murdering, but they also like, they even get into the greed. Like there's a scene, um, which they said was apparently directed by an uncredited Michael Curtiz, um, where the, the top brass of the organization is like sitting around trying to figure out how to milk more money out of the yeah. people in it. And it's like, it just, it never ends. Um, and also how they intimidate them. Cause some people join this organization. They understandably have second thoughts. And then they're like, Oh yeah, you can leave. We'll just kill your family. And they're like, never mind. So it's just evil through and through. And, a really genuine condemnation for the time. I don't know if. Yeah. I I thought it was really good um, for all the reasons that Scott and Julie just said, but um, it it was really like toward the end. Once, once bogey is in too deep that that's when we really like, it went from good to great for me Um, in, in as much as like he is, he like sees right away that they're not good, not a good group. He's maybe not, that into i mean you have to pledge allegiance to the devil and like they give you yeah. a bullet kind of thing like it's very it's very dark um but um uh, but it's it's basically like he's trying to do the right thing at a certain point or at least starting to want to do that and it's like they're just there at every step of the way like the lawyers and everything and it, it ends up being that like it's him having to lie about uh infidelity that is actually yeah. what pushes him to the edge um which i think is um good i thought yeah i thought everything about the the movie was good and it it went places i wasn't expecting um and it didn't feel like uh uh, like a psa the way that i thought it might sure Yeah. yeah and i think that maybe is because it's bleak like there's no redemption the community is destroyed there's no like you know what he made a mistake we all sometimes join a hate group it's fine it's like no everything is ruined because you were a racist idiot it's it's done and especially if you consider the happy ending is literally everyone goes to jail. <laughs> yes. And especially if you consider that this is the late thirties and certain segments of America are kind of playing footsie with the fascism happening in Europe. Um, it's like, especially damning in that light. So the national board of review named it the best film of that year and bogey is best actor. And I hear that. Mm-hmm. So strongly recommend. All right. Kyle's up next. Indeed. Yeah. So, I, uh, one of the movies that I was excited to watch, um, was 1939's Wuthering Heights directed by William Wyler. Um, it's, uh, I'd been getting way more into that kind of like big costume kind of Gothic romance drama of, of late. Um, it was, you know, a, a type of movie that I would never have watched when I was younger. Um, but lately I'm into it. So I was like excited to give it a watch. I'd never seen any version of it. I'd never read it or anything like that. I knew the basic premise, but that was it. So this of course stars, um, Lawrence Olivier as Heathcliff and Merle Oberon and, um, uh, David Niven is in it as well. And, uh, it, it's beautiful. It's got great costumes. I think everyone does a good job. Uh, I think I just fundamentally did not like or believe the central romance. And I thought Heathcliff was an asshole and that uh, he did not deserve. I mean, he had, a, he had, a, he grows up as kind of a vagabond who is, who is kicked by his um, surrogate older brother who is, you know, a nobleman and everything like that. He leaves, he comes back with money we never see any of that journey though. I wish we did. Um, and then his whole goal is to try to get 
Merle Oberon, who is already married to David Niven at that point, um, and just makes her life miserable. He makes his life miserable and makes um, her older brother's life miserable and his new wife's life miserable. And then uh, Merle Oberon, spoilers, dies of sadness, I guess. It's I was I was like by that point is like, can they all die? And then they do. So that's the end of the movie. Yeah. <laughs> Hooray. Yeah. I saw it a while ago. I wasn't super didn't, didn't, So I didn't like it at all. And I know it was it was nominated for quite a few Oscars and stuff that year. So I was kind of, but also it was 1939. That was a big year. Other things got in the way. Um, but um, yeah, I, I w- wouldn't watch it again. Well, hopefully you like the next one a lot better because I sure did. Um, getting back to white supremacist hate groups. Uh, and into Frank, the 40s, by the way. And into the 40s. Uh, it's Frank Borzaghi's, uh Rise of the Nazis movie, The Mortal Storm, um, which kind of chronicles one family as uh, some of them uh, are really into Adolf Hitler and some of them are a little suspicious and growing uh, more suspicious the years go on. It kind of... I would say it starts in 33 and probably goes up till 37 or so. So it covers a good deal of time for a hundred minute movie. Um, James Stewart stars as the most questioning of all the uh, loosely affiliated people. Robert Young plays probably the most uh, Nazi gung-ho Nazi of them all. And Margaret Sullivan is caught between the middle of them. So kind of building this romance. Um, But it's really, I I really liked it. Um, I thought it did a great job of, uh, really communicating the national national fervor that was around Nazism at the time. And it's worth noting that this was before America was even in World War II. So um, there was a lot of hesitancy by the studios to condemn Nazism at all. And commercially, you can understand why, because as soon as this movie was made, Adolf Hitler banned all MGM movies, not just this movie, but all MGM movies from being released in Germany. Um, so there's some serious consequences of doing so. And so the film, rather than, you know, assuming that Nazism will one day crumble which I think a lot of movies made after this period do. This movie is like, no, this is a rising threat and only getting worse and coming for us all. And it very much has that vibe to it. Yeah, I also really loved it. I thought it was, um, uh, I mean, you look at the cast initially and no one's doing, no one, no one who is American is doing a German accent, no. <laughs> um, which I appreciate. But at the, fr- at the beginning, you're like, Jimmy Stewart, you are not German. <laughs> like you cannot, you cannot fool me. Um, but um, but yeah, like like very quickly, Frank Morgan is in it as well, um, and everyone does a really good job. It starts out kind of like as a sappy, you know, big MGM movie, and it becomes really serious very quickly. Um, and I thought they did a, a fantastic job of you know uh, portraying the the kind of like immediate fervor and like like constantly people are saying like. It just, you know, at, at school or just at a restaurant, or, you know, at the pub or whatever, like, what do you b- believe in Adolf Hitler? If not, we're going to beat you up. Like it's, it's that fast and that kind of like violent stuff like that. Um, Ward Bond is in it. Uh, young Ward Bond playing a pretty vile Nazi and also a very young Robert Stack is in it, um, which I was kind of surprising. Um, uh, so yeah, it was, I, I thought it was great. Um, and uh, um doesn't it's weird to see the basically the same exact cast from a shop the shop around the corner but in a nazi movie that came out the same year yeah i didn't make that connection but uh you're right once again oh wow Stewart doesn't quite fit in in eastern europe but <laughs> nonetheless sells the heart of it all no. um yeah another Indeed. kyle scott joint next we also saw yeah uh <laughs> yeah. howard hawks's ball of um, fire i'll let you go first on this one 
as there's a good okay. chance liked it more than I did. Uh, and I'll say I've seen this movie and I love it. So, uh, Kyle, you and I can gang yeah. up on Scott if need be. <laughs> um, yeah, so this is um, 1941, as Scott said, uh, uh, Howard Hawks, written, co-written by Billy Wilder and um, Charles Beaumont, right? I don't remember somebody bracket. Thank you. Charles Brackett. Charles Bowman is a different writer. Um, but, uh, so it's got that kind of, it's also got a very Billy Wilder Toland. kind of, um, Oh yeah. And, uh, costumes by Edith head. There's a lot of, uh, pedigree, uh, in, in ball of fire. And you've got, in a, and you've got a, Gary Cooper. in a small role. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, playing I, a I guy keep... named, <laughs> named Duke Pastrami. <laughs> um, <laughs> is character. Um, uh, Gary Cooper and uh, uh, Barbara Stanek. Gary Cooper is the nerdiest nerd of all time. He and a bunch of very old men are um, of different, you know, uh, academic backgrounds are um, working on an encyclopedia that has taken them a decade. And um, they realize that they don't have any slang terms from the current slang system or whatever and so they go out to try to he goes out to try to talk to people and learn the new slang so they could put it in the encyclopedia while at the same time barbara stanwick is a a nightclub singer who's um a gangster boyfriend um played by dana andrews uh has done some bad stuff that she knows about so she needs to go into hiding and so basically like goes and lives at this you know uh, uh university and teaches them about all the 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 crazy you know uh 1940 slang um and uh through the course of it there's a romance that blossoms and uh gary cooper is kind of a dupe throughout most of the movie um but it, he's quite charming and uh barbara stanwick is barbara stanwick um but I, I i did quite like it i didn't like it as much as some of the other howard hawks um screwball comedies but um like there was enough there that i really enjoyed about it um that and i and i laughed out loud a few times which is hard to do by yourself at home uh, oh, not for me. I I laugh out loud more frequently, but I'm by myself actually. Um, I think I may do too. <laughs> I uh, before Scott talks, I, uh, I I really love this movie, and maybe it helps that I when I saw it, I did see it in a theater full of people at the uh, at the Arrow um, uh, a few years ago. Um, but uh, I've always I've, I've have always found Gary Cooper very Gary, Gary Cooper very charming. Um, and hot, by the way, we can say that Gary Cooper's hot too. I'm not, I'm not just sure. going to say Faye Ray's hot. Because he's dead. Because uh, he's dead, I can say it. Um, uh, and uh, uh, Barbara Stanwyck. So I, I think, and, and uh, the Howard Hawks brings a lot of the, the, the screwball stuff that you uh, expect, but also um, there, there's, a, there's a moment in, in, in this movie um, in which all of the uh, the other six of the seven dwarves the plot is essentially the seven dwarves obviously um uh, but the 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 old men are the are the dwarves and all the other one are uh, other other what the old men are, are having dinner together and the one man like remembers a song that reminds him of he's a widower reminds him of his late wife and and the other uh professor starts singing the song to him and he's like says like you know keep singing it as i go up stairs to bed and it's just and uh, i find that moment in the middle of this sort of madcap uh uh um screwball movie that that moment is like so incredibly sweet and 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 tender and i found it uh uh so moving and and i remember that as much as i remember all the 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 slang and the drum boogie and the uh corny like (laughs) defining the word corny which is a a a scene i like um 
it's a pretty uh, good scene I, though the, the corny yeah. the corny scene yeah but uh it's 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 got all that and and more and uh yeah dan Duryea is a is a guy named duke pastrami <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I first saw this a long time ago, and then I was like, I'll give it another shot. People s- seem to like it. Uh, and I, I just still can't get into it. I still think it's too... I think Hawks is playing by the Wilder playbook too much, and Wilder, to me, doesn't become great until uh, he ditched Charles Brackett and got in with the uh, IL Diamond. Um, I, I just don't think the humor quite plays. I think it's too long. I think... It, could be played a lot faster. It doesn't have kind of the Hoxian dialogue. It doesn't kind of have the Hoxian perspective on relationships. It has this kind of class system that Wilder clearly believes in and Hawks always seeks to uh, demolish that um, is just too upheld throughout. And yeah, I don't know. It, it's sort of for abstract reasons that I don't dig it. I do dig Cooper in it. Um, a lot of the sporting players are really good, but um, I don't know. It's just never come together for me. Uh, all right. Another, yeah, I get uh, that. It, it feels oh, like a, Oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, no, I was going to move on. So if you have more to say about ball of fire, you should say, Oh that. yeah. Well, I was just going to say it, it does feel like a, <laughs> it does feel like a, a mix of both their styles. I, at a certain point, I stopped thinking of it as a Howard Hawks movie and started just watching it like a Billy Wilder movie. Yeah. And I, that I, I think I enjoyed it better because I was expecting a lot more of the Hawks and stuff, um, which does not come through like, like you were saying. So, um, uh yeah but but i agree like wilder's funniest movies are later on when he's writing with diamond instead so i agree with that all right on to 1947's t-men directed by anthony mann which i watched uh, and i alone watched apparently um for two reasons one um i really like anthony mann at least when he's directing noir and western movies uh i did recently watch his fall of the roman empire and uh yeah big costume prestige movies were not this guy's (laughs) forte that movie is a snooze but uh when he's got you know movies with people shooting each other uh in them i tend to like his uh uh sort of blunt um uh uh unromantic decent sessionalized approach to violence. Um, so I watched it because it was team. It was I watched team man because it was a Anthony man movie, but also because I am obsessed with these propaganda movies, which there are a bunch in the, the film noir movies of this era where it's like, it's a movie that is like brought to you by a, a law enforcement branch. Yeah. Yeah. Um, um, the, the other ones that I, off the top of my head that I know I've seen are uh, down three dark streets, which is an FBI movie. Uh, the city that never sleeps, which is, which is a Chicago police department movie uh, and trapped, which is a treasury agency movie. And T-Men is also a treasury agency movie. And here you've got this time you get Dennis O'Keefe uh, uh, and another guy, I forget the other actor's name as uh, um, treasury agents who go undercover uh, in a counterfeiting ring. And, um, you can only do so much when it's propaganda. Like obviously they have to look like they're uh, it's like a procedural, you know, they have to look like they're the smartest and there's, there's really corny like third person narration, not narration by anyone who's in the movie, just uh, a narrator telling you what's happening and really trying to tell you that like, Oh, the, he noticed the, uh, that this guy likes to go to uh, Turkish baths. And like, that's because he's such a great detective or whatever. Uh, It's really trying to sell you, sell you on how, uh, how important these guys jobs are. But uh, uh, outside, so the movie's not perfect or anything. But I still, I like the Anthony Mann noir uh, touches. It's got it's it's very quintessential noir in the in the way that it's uh, framed and and lit, and also in the sort of uh, the the bits of of uh, 
bleakness that he uh, that that he actually gets to to cram into this this movie that's supposed to make treasure agents uh, look good there's a part where there's a guy who's an under, undercover he's undercover he's with uh uh a counterfeiter and they're at the uh the original farmer's market on third oh yeah there's a lot of great uh, la locations in this uh they walk all around chinatown um he's at the farmer's market and his wife is there and his wife's friend is like oh it's your husband and his wife is like i know he's undercover if i blow if i blow my husband's cover right now this might be the last time i see him alive and it's uh, a very like tense um and and potentially very sad uh and and bleak moment uh and there's a there's a number of, of things like that um and then yeah it has a shootout at the end where in anthony man style uh anthony man doesn't make shooting people or getting shot look heroic uh in in his movies and um so yeah the uh the good guys win at the end but because it's anthony man it still feels like uh a paired victory anyway uh, i really liked it yeah, I respect that you're into these propaganda movies because I find them all unbelievably dull. <laughs> T-Man is uh, amongst the duller ones for me, um, but I'm glad that you dug it. That's funny because I, I, I'm more fascinated by them than I like them. But I would say T-Man, T-Man I think, because as I've made clear, I have a predisposition toward liking Anthony Mann movies. I actually found it less boring than, than uh, some of the other ones. And certainly sure. the John Elton uh, cinematography helps quite a bit in that regard because some of this, he shot the most noiry looking noirs and, and man's uh, were particularly noiry looking because of that. Well, keeping on the noir train, very yeah. noir title, They Won't Believe Me from 1947, which had a great Eddie Muller introduction, which you always want Eddie Muller to show up and be like, like just vaguely describe the movie and go, that's noir. And like that really kicks <laughs> off best for me oh yeah because i gotta say like you know david listen you can have your thing with introductions but i love an eddie muller introduction especially because we've seen so many in person because he does the thing you're supposed to do which is that he gets you excited for the movie every single time totally amped totally amped yeah completely but uh, but i already i at that point i already got my i already bought my ticket i don't need i don't need someone to to pump me up for the movie that i'm already planning i'm already excited to see look I guess, okay, for me, I like, as far as TCM in, introducers, I guess, uh, uh, regulars, I like Carrie Beecham. I like when Carrie Beecham comes up and gives me a bunch of facts about the people who are in the movie that I didn't know. That's the stuff that I like. That I, don't, I, I don't need Eddie Muller to pump me up. It seems like a nice guy. <laughs> but, uh... Spicy take. <laughs> anyway, uh, I I didn't really like write down the whole plot of this, but it's basically a great series of plot bands where Robert Young keeps attracting various women who want to involve him in one scheme or another, all of which spell their doom. Uh, Muller accurately uh, framed him as an homme fatale. It's very much about these women who are drawn to him for the wrong reasons and uh, does them in. But the plot is centered around him. You know, usually like the femme fatale thing, you're like tracking the downfall of this guy who's chasing this woman here is this guy who seemingly can't stop killing women seemingly basically by attracting them um yeah i thought it was really stellar yeah but i will say like he's honestly like more of a sleaze than like a menace which i thought was an interesting choice because you say killing and it's like that's a little vague that's yeah. not quite he, what happened. the whole point of the title is he keeps causing their deaths in very suspicious ways and the they who won't believe him are the jury who are judging him yeah um but yeah, I just thought it was interesting because yeah, like they said, it's like flipping the script and there's no guns, there's no like crime, there's no like drug running or it, it's really just 
a sleazy dude ruining women's lives, but he's not even that like menacing. He's like kind of charming. It's like, I get it. Um, but I think it's a, it's kind of a slow burn. It's like, takes a little while to get going, but I think it really pays off. I think it really comes together. Um, there's a, a saying, I think maybe it's a thing Eddie Muller says where like a noir is a movie where someone makes the wrong decision. It's like, okay, arguably that's every movie. I don't know if I totally agree. However, in this movie, that moment is like as clear as day because he's like going through and it's like, okay, he's had some bad luck. He's done some shady. Oh, yep. There it goes. And it's just like, you know, it's going to completely fall apart from there. Um, this was also a new restoration, um, not only of the image, but of the runtime because they trimmed right. it down um, when they started showing it like in double bills later, they trimmed it down to 80 minutes. They trimmed 15 minutes off of it. So this was the world premiere of having it be its full runtime again. So the restoration looked really nice. Um, it's also like they shot a lot on location. There's a lot of like gorgeous mountains and waterfalls and stuff, which I'm sure were all within with like an hour drive of LA. Um, but yeah, and it's great. And the ending, like I like yipped. I was yeah. like so it's startled by the ending. I like yipped a little. It was it's got a gut punch of an ending. Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, I thought this was fantastic. This is up there um, with one of my favorites that I saw that this weekend. And uh, for the, for all those reasons, I Robert, this is another, there's a lot of usually at TCM fest and this year is no different. There's a lot of weird overlap between actors that I didn't realize. So like Robert Young was in the mortal storm and he's also in this. And there's a couple other people who are in this and also in another one we're going to talk about. And I just thought that was interesting, but um, uh I thought it was great. And I think Julie's really hit on something about he's not he's not an evil guy. I don't think he's just a cad who, like, for some reason, can't like he's just constantly bombarded by beautiful women who want to marry him at all times. And his wife, who he clearly doesn't like, won't give him a divorce because she likes him too much. Like, it's ridiculous. <laughs> and it's just like he's pretty he's, charming. <laughs> yeah. He wants a divorce. So she she buys him a stake in this um, uh, firm in on the uh, in Los Angeles on the West Coast so that he can be a VP of this company <laughs> to keep him happy. And it's just like the, the most absurd series of events. Um, but yeah, it just keeps getting more and more twisted the further it goes. And uh yeah. And it's just like, nobody ends up really happy in this, in a noir movie, a good noir movie should not have a happy ending. I don't think, I mean, they can, but then it just seems like a jip. Um, this one doesn't have a had a uh, happy ending for literally anybody. And I, I thought that that like, and it keeps you guessing until the very last second too, which I think is great. And I also yipped, I have to say. Yeah. <laughs> right on. Well, okay. Nora ahead with David. Uh, yeah, I won't, I won't spend too long on this one either because like I, said uh, this is just another one me like filling in a, a blind spot jules dassen's the naked city uh, i'd never seen it and um yeah it's another as like it's detective noir i guess but as a detective movie it's uh it's pretty thin soup uh, it's yeah. not like a it's not like a great mystery it's the 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 selling point here is the the photography i, I think i want to say the movie won an oscar for cinematography i'm not uh uh sure about that but um uh, it's uh, all of the exteriors are are on location, New York City, beautifully shot um, uh, um, scenes. Um, and what really uh, it's it's a sort of a step by step procedural. Um, again, very very dry, but um, it takes on the feel of a docudrama. And and um, what I realized like I know the 
I, I knew going in that the reputation of the movie is the New York City locations and, and like there's a um, a uh, the sort of climactic showdown is on the Williamsburg Bridge uh, and stuff. But what I really found myself um, cherishing about the movie is not New York City so much as all the New Yorkers who are, who are in the movie. Like everywhere they go, um, uh, uh, like you were talking about with, with her man, there's just always a crowd everywhere. <laughs> um, you know, the, the, the sidewalks are, are crowded. The train platforms are, are, are crowded. And these are like, I guess, you know, actual New Yorkers. And it, and it, and it, uh, it, I, I feel like just those people being there gives the movie this sense of, uh this tactility had this tactile sense of authenticity um that you you couldn't get by shooting the same locations without people in them um so i uh um i tend to be a sucker for um movies that uh capture old los angeles because i love um this city but uh, i don't know as much about new york but this gave me that same feeling i get from from watching old uh, la movies also would you say that the city of new york is in a way its own character I uh, make a point never to say that. <laughs> I know it's so annoying. Yeah, no, I know. Uh, all right, I didn't look at what's next. I'm like, God, I'm a, more I'm a, noir. Next. More noir. I love trouble. I love trouble, and I loved. I love trouble. Um, this movie. Let's be very clear up front. This movie is a ripoff of The Big Sleep. It's not trying to hide it. No one <laughs> otherwise. But that's fine because it's a real good time. I would say it's like more of a B picture because it's kind of like cheaper and scrappier. Um, and it's like that setup is fun. Like a private eye just going around and like, would you believe it? This simple case turns out to be so much more complicated. Um, he goes up to Portland, which having lived there for a bit was kind of a trip. I mean, you never really see anything. You just see rain and it's like, well, that's Portland. <laughs> um, but so the star is French Tone, and I've, I'm a longtime fan of his. He's not super well remembered today because I don't think any of his individual movies are super famous, but he was a big star of the time and he never really got pigeonholed into any one type. He played all different types. And I think he adopts the Philip Marlowe persona very well. I think he's like, he's slinging these cracks and he's like, you know, being cool when guns are pointed in his face. Um, it also, his girl, uh, Friday sidekick is Glenda Farrell, which as previously discussed, we stand. Um, and the screenwriter is Roy Huggins, who went on to create the Rockford Files and the Fugitive. He also created a TV show with the same character in it called yeah. 77 Sunset Strip. Um, mm. but it's just, listen, if you like the big sleep, like watch this, but maybe wait till it's on better quality. Cause the quality, the quality is pretty dodgy, but yeah, it, I was, I mean, I got to watch a movie, so I'm not upset about it, but like uh, the quality of it was kind of a bummer um, to me as well. It was, it was a bit too dark, um, but not in, in the way that you want necessarily, but the story did really compel me. And part of the plot is that there are all these women who look kind of the same. And once you realize that that's part of the plot, I was like, they're really smart because all the women look exactly the same. And I was having trouble keeping, I was like, which one's this again? Um, Cause I didn't know any of the actresses enough to be like, well, that's this one, but uh, they're all pretending to be somebody else. And it's great. Um, uh, but yeah, I, it was, it was like a, a cheaper, less kind of um, high class big sleep, but I had a great time with it. And uh, speaking of more cast overlaps that I didn't expect, Tom powers plays the husband who hires 
are uh, Francho Tone. He also played uh, the put upon kind of or the victim actually and uh, husband in Double Indemnity. But he was one of the the dumb idiots in uh, uh, Black Legion as well. Oh <laughs> so, yeah, cool. a lot of a lot of fun kind of overlap of uh, people. Yeah, this was probably my second favorite of the festival. Um, it was good. There's, I know there's a contingent of people who likes the noir detective thing because it like unfurls some dark element of the detective's past that then like represents a bigger thing. This is like, this guy was just born to be a detective. He only came on, he only exists to be on screen to be a detective for the course of this movie. There's even a line, I wrote this down, where one of the women uh, says, you're a highly improbable character, Mr. Bailey. Did someone just dream you up? And like, yes, completely. Somebody just dreamed you up to figure out this mystery and to make wise cracks. Like uh, someone's like, this is a gun in my hand. He's like, yeah, I've seen one before. It's like, that's perfect. This is exactly what I want out of any movie. Um, it has great camera work. There's a part where someone gets shot and you can't see the assailant because you're only seeing the gun's point of view, like in Doom. Um, <laughs> every time he gets knocked out, the camera like swirls. Which in. is a lot for this. Yeah, you know, which is a lot. Um, the camera like goes crazy. And yeah, it's just, um, oh, there's split screen phone calls. Yeah. Which are super cool. And uh, yeah, there's one in the split screen phone call where he's about to go meet up this girl somewhere and he goes, that car you hear coming to a screeching stop is me. Open the door. <laughs> and then the scene like fades into them meeting up. Um, <laughs> and yeah, between like all the women looking alike and like the fact that everyone like sits, like seems like a fake person. It just has this wonderful like dreamlike quality of just this perfectly idealized detective fiction. And, and, and just like you want in a, in a movie like this, everybody just comes into his apartment at the end and they're all oh, just yeah. there. Oh, yeah. And some you of them have, have guns and some of them don't. It's there there was a Fran, I, i've only seen a few franco tone movies I've, I've enjoyed him but i thought he was excellent in this but there's a, sh, a, a moment at the end of this when he picks up somebody's gun who just was holding it on him and then the person whose gun it is uh comes back in and goes go ahead and shoot him it's not loaded and he he tries to fire it and it's not loaded and just the look of like of course this is happening on franco tone's <laughs> face is is was priceless i i like I want to go back and watch it just for that moment alone. And I will say, even though he's not as well remembered today, he was married to Joan Crawford for yeah. a while, but then Betty Davis also fell in love with him. And he is apparently possibly the reason that their feud started. So he's worth it. Ladies. That's bragging rights. <laughs> yeah. Well done. Francho. <laughs> you guys, are we into the fifties? Yeah. yeah. Are we halfway there? <laughs> Living on a prayer. Yeah. Yep. We're in the fifties. Yeah, rare Kyle Solo joint. Yeah, I watched um, Chain Lightning, uh, which was the very last picture that um, uh, a very clearly aging and didn't care anymore um, Humphrey Bogart did for Warner Brothers. Um, he should not have been in this movie. I love Humphrey Bogart, but he uh, was too old to play the character. He's playing a a stunt test pilot for this, this fancy new um uh, jet airplane that they've made and uh he, it's he his love interest is half his age but that's not uncommon but it's like he doesn't even seem to like her that much like it's he's phoning it in but so i didn't didn't love this movie but i will say that it's got some outstanding special effects they built this plane which didn't actually it wasn't like a running plane, but they made it so that um, it could be dragged behind, like on a, on a runway, dragged behind another uh, vehicle. And they made it so that the line that was dragging the plane was exactly level with the horizon. So you couldn't see it. Um, so it looked like it was actually going. And they had like, uh, you know, something for smoke in the back. And because it's a Warner Brothers picture, all of the 
uh, airplane noises that it makes because it doesn't actually make any noise. It's all Looney Tunes sounds. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like, it sounds like the Tasmanian devil, <laughs> which I thought was adorable. Um, but then there's also some really great model shots and some great, um, you know, um, composite shots and things like that. So if you're watching it for the technical aspect, and actually I also watched the, the um, complimentary making of that Ben Burt and Craig Barron did. And they're kind of in character kind of thing um, explaining how they did it. That was really informative and really good, which is how I know some of that stuff. Um, but so worth watching the movie so that I could watch the making of, but um, I, I like bogey didn't want to be there. And it was very obvious. He does have a really great scene in it because he's still Humphrey Bogart toward the end when a friend of, you know, a, one of the other test pilots, because most of the story, it's really dumb and convoluted, but it's like this industrialist wants to make money off of this test plane, but he won't pay for the safety protocols. It's like that type of thing. And so Humphrey Bogart won't go up because he's like, there's no safety protocols. We're not doing it. And so the, his friend goes up and dies in the plane. And so then um, Bogart has this really great scene where he like, you know, choose the, choose him out. And, and he's basically saying it to his love interest and over the radio, but like, um, but yeah, that was like the one scene that I was like, Oh, that's a bogey's actually trying in this one. Um, but yeah, otherwise it was just kind of a snooze. Getting into the David and Julie show. Yeah. Julie kick, kick us off. Yeah. So it, moving on to 1951, the whistle at Eaton falls. So a lot of times it whistle. <laughs> whistle um a lot of times at tcm fest i am drawn like a moth to flame to the stuff i haven't heard of i'm like i have no idea what this is someone thought it was worthwhile let's do it so i wanted to check this out um unfortunately it was kind of a miss for me um basically i mean it sounds good on paper it's rob i don't know how to say his name robert siodmac i think that's right um directed it He's like a big noir director, um, and it's about tensions rising in a small town due to a labor dispute at a factory. Um, the head of the, the labor union becomes president of the factory, so it's kind of a built-in conflict. Um, it has Lloyd Bridges and Ernest Borgnine. The problem I had- One of Ernest Borgnine's first roles, by the way. Yeah, yeah. Um, the problem I had was that it doesn't really spend enough time on what makes that conflict interesting, which is kind of the ideological battles and then the personal toll it takes. It just spends way too much time on like mechanics and logistics of that. Like I learned way more about automated cutting machines and button auctions than I ever thought I would. <laughs> um, and even like scenes where like they're not at the factory, or they're not at the office, like young lovers at home, they're talking about the factory. <laughs> like no one is ever talking about anything else but this factory. And I'm like, it's hard to make a point that this is taking such a toll if that's all anybody's talking about. Um, also for setting up what seems like sort of a complex worldview where there's no real enemy except capitalism, it does wrap up real neat with a big bow on it. I was like, oh, we're done. Uh, um, I'll, I'll uh, crib from my own thing that I already posted. It's a deus ex plastica. Sure. <laughs> it's a plastics factory. Sure. Um, yeah, but there is, I mean, the the kind of the number two person in the union is this feisty lady that was nice she was like rallying the crowd and stuff um and has some other good people it has like Anne francis in it and some other kind of up-and-comers but i do think it just it missed the point of what makes that conflict interesting and that was a bummer for me um i don't know david if you agree uh yeah i think i was uh it's not so much that uh i i seek out necessarily seek out the thing i haven't heard of but there's sometimes the title just i think 
when I saw the title, The Whistle of Eaton Falls, I subconsciously knew, well, I'm watching that. <laughs> I, I, I don't know what it's about, but I just like that. <laughs> I like that title. But I wanted to point out, actually, before I get into it, um, let me read the IMDb plot synopsis, because whoever wrote this knows the movie's boring, <laughs> which, you will, which you will find in the last line. So the plot's on, Brad Adams is the new manager of a manufacturing plant in a small New Hampshire town. He is brought in by owner Mrs. Doubleday to calm labor relations, plus layoff employees. Brad also manages to find romance. No, he doesn't. That's not a part of the story. Someone just made that up because they decided they realized the movie was boring and said, uh, also, there's a love story, but there's not. Um, now, yeah, I, 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 yeah, it's it's pretty dry. Um, I didn't, I didn't hate it because it's still, you know, Robert C. O. Mac is no slouch. You know, he knows how to put stuff together. Um, but uh, yeah, it's it's dry. I, I also found that for a movie that is ostensibly pro labor, it seems way too eager to paint a huge part of the work for workforce as easily led dupes. Yeah. Um, who basically just like, like it, it movies at times seems to be saying like what labor needs is just good management. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, uh, so I, I, I got kind of turned off by, by that. I don't know. I feel like we're being very harsh on the movie, which I didn't, I'm glad I, I watched it. Um, yeah. The restoration looked amazing. I think it's a new right. restoration yeah. by Flickr Alley. And it was like, you could like see the texture of people's skin. Like it was unreal. So that I, yeah, I could tell. Uh, yeah. I could tell it's a new res restoration because when I went Google image searching for stills from the movie, there's like nothing on the internet yet that, uh, that, that it's all like gross, muddy uh, images. Um, so it must be in, yeah, like you said, a brand new restoration. Um, oh yeah. And I, I forgot to mention, you know, there's always with these like small town tensions, there's always like, well, this, we know this will end in tragedy. Right. And it does, there is a tragedy but then they're just like, oh, no. And then they never mention it again. Yeah, yeah. It's like someone literally dies. And they're like, no, he died. And then they never mention him again. Um, I will say something kind of weird I noticed. Um, fittingly, for being a movie about labor issues, it is maybe the only classic Hollywood movie I've ever seen that credits a production assistant and key grip in the opening credits. <laughs> I thought that was interesting. <laughs> Good for them. Good for them. Yeah. Yeah, they're like looking around. They're like, you know what? Other, there are other people here. How do you like that? <laughs> Um, but yeah, can't super recommend it, but. Oh. All right. Uh, jumping ahead to 1955. I'm the only name on here. Who's, I guess I'm the only one who watched this at TCM fest, but yeah, I think this is one of my very favorite movies of all time though. Uh, yeah, it's, uh, I, well, I know you don't do, uh, star ratings on letterbox, but this is one of, uh, only a very few five-star movies from this year's TCM fest for me. It's, uh, Stanley Donnan and Gene Kelly's it's always fair weather. Um, which is, uh, just, a. uh, a, a, a series of fun musical numbers, basically um, each more inspired than the last. Um, you've got them tap dancing with trash can lids on their feet, tap dancing in skate in roller skates. Uh, you've got an entire musical number in which the only choreography is the expression of the characters' faces because it's a musical number that's all in voiceover. Uh, uh, there's 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 so much fun stuff that I could talk about. Um, and you can read my thoughts of it at battleshippretension.com. What I want to point out here, I want to talk about gowns and dresses. I want to talk about clothing because there are two knockout outfits in 
in this movie. There's the highlight, the best number in the movie for me personally is when the Gene Kelly isn't even in. It's the Sid Charisse uh, number at the boxing gym where it's Sid Charisse and a sort of chorus of palookas. Um, and she's uh, uh, dancing around and she's wearing this amazing, like, I, I don't think it's a dress. I think it's actually like a two separates, but it's like a uh, very tight, like t- sort of a uh, turtleneck top uh, on top. That's, that's like Jade green and, and a slightly darker shade of green. There's a long skirt. That's, that's um, not tight because she has to swing around in it, but also is a nice clingy fabric that uh, uh, is, you know, good for an athletic dancers form, I guess. I'm once again, I'm being a, a creep, um, but it's said, Charisse, what are you going to do? Um, so I wanted to point out that uh, outfit and then Dolores Gray, who is um, there's two, there's Michael Kidd and Dolores Gray who are both in this movie. Um, both have very, very short IMDb profiles. That's because they were big, like uh, Broadway uh, people, which is something that I tend to, I'm like, a, I, I tend to be like a movie only person. And I sometimes forget that people have careers on the stage um uh that i'm like oh michael kidd he didn't really do that much oh wait no he's like one of the most famous like broadway stars of all time but dolores gray who was also in the movie uh who runs away with the movie in a couple of scenes um but especially her her big uh uh number she's wearing this sort of like sequin pink gown that has a like a like a hard sort of like corset type bodice that has at the, it has like wings like over where the armpits are that given that it's a pinkish reddish gown look for all the world like devil horns and that's uh so cool and i thought her that her uh her her gown that she wore in that in that uh in that number was uh, oddly metal because of the the uh the, <laughs> the devil horns uh coming off of of her her bodice that's just i i could uh, spend the rest of the movie talking about uh, or rest of the episode talking about different things I loved about this movie, but um, yeah, I, I understand Scott why this is one of your favorites of, of all time. It's uh, I, certainly one of my favorites in the festival. I am surprised you characterized it as like purely a fun time because I actually find it pretty sad and mournful. It's about these three guys who, at the beginning of the movie, they're getting out of World War II and they're like, "We're gonna be friends for life. Nothing but good times ahead for us." And they're like, "Okay, we're gonna meet up here in ten years and we'll be great friends. We can reminisce about all the great times we've had." And then they just and then the movie picks up ten years later. They drifted apart. They barely remember each other and then they try to get back together and they have a really difficult time reconnecting. And obviously throughout the course of the movie, they do find things in common, but then Stanley Donham plays the end of the movie exactly like how they separated the first time, indicating that these guys will keep going through the same motion of like feeling like they've reconnected, but just drifting apart again. And it's very much about like the post-war um, feeling of like, feeling like we were once together as a nation and that we had a common mm-hmm. purpose but that it's all kind of drifted apart into just everyday life after that. I, I, I like that stuff. I don't think it's as, I don't think it's as present in the movie as it is in the kind of like log line of the movie, I, because so much oh, of the yeah. movie focuses on Gene Kelly's uh, career as a uh, shady uh, boxing manager and his romance with Sid Charisse. And I feel like the Dan Daly and Michael Kidd storylines are the, the stuff you're talking about is, is there, but I, uh, in terms of screen time, it feels like it's given shorter shrift than the but It permeates the everything. You know, the Gene Kelly on roller skates number where he's talking about how falling in love with Sid Charisse made him like himself again. Like, the whole movie is like permeated with this idea of people who have just completely disconnected from who they thought they were and kind of finding an element of that again. And whether it's about the guy's relationship specifically or just their lives in general, I think that really, or the kind of mood is 
well, about the, what the movie is about. It was interesting listening to you all talk about it because uh, I, having listened, I realized that I have seen this movie before. When I didn't. <laughs> yeah, we watched it. <laughs> yeah, I forgot. I just forgot it. And we, in, in fact, did watch it and I enjoyed it. Yeah. Yeah, no, I like it. What's, I like it too. What's, what's interesting about it also is that it's like sort of, but not really a sequel to On the Town, yeah. um, which is another Stanley Donnan, uh, Gene Kelly musical. This was from 1949, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's about three sailors who have a single day of shore leave and go out and get into adventures. Um, so it's not the same characters though. All they kept is that there's three sailors. <laughs> Um, but it's kind of weird that it, the same director and the same star took that up again. It was like, what if this, but melancholy? Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, good stuff. Less melancholy. Less Jilly's melancholy. Movie. Um, so I'm closing out the fifties here. I watched plan nine from outer space for the very first time. I realize now that it was probably not seeing it under optimal conditions to watch it at home by yourself in the early afternoon. I realize yeah. that now. <laughs> um, I was actually, I was expecting it actually to be weirder. I found it surprisingly coherent. (laughs) Um, So I've seen Ed Wood, the Tim Burton movie. I've seen that many years ago. And I'm glad I had that background because what I took away from Ed Wood is just like the joy and enthusiasm that he brought to filmmaking. And when you think of like, quote unquote, bad directors, to me, they kind of fall into three types. There's the ones that are just kind of checked out and they just don't care. There's the ones that are like tortured artist types. I would maybe put Tommy Wiseau in that category. He tried to pretend he wasn't that later, but he was. Um, But then I think Ed Wood is this third type, which is they're just enthusiastic. They're just, their enthusiasm outstrips their talent. And you know what? That's okay. And we're just happy for them. And there's a certain purity and joy in that, that I think comes through in the movie. Um, so yeah, it was surprisingly coherent, like not to get too like Eisenstein here, but it's kind of amazing that he he edited together footage of Bela Lugosi during the day, a completely different guy at night, and you can watch it and know it's supposed to be the same guy. It's like, you know, he did something right, I guess. <laughs> um, you also get some great like LA moments. You get some like neon on Hollywood Boulevard. You, they talk about Burbank probably more than most movies I've seen. That's, this is what I go. Yeah. I, I, it's been a long time since I've seen it, but I like um, that sort of historical aspect of it, of Burbank yeah. being like a small town near Los Angeles, yeah. which I guess it technically still is, but yeah. it's, it's now sort of surrounded by uh, uh, Los Angeles um, and, and is a, a part of the, the, uh, greater metro area, not like a sleepy outpost right. outside of Los Angeles, which I uh, I like that. Um, I think probably my favorite part was John Breckenridge, who in the Tim Burton movie is played by Bill Murray. Um, he was one of the few in the cast who actually had stage experience. He was an openly gay drag queen. And in the movie, he's just, he's wearing makeup, like just obviously, and he's just constantly rolling his eyes and he plays the leader of the aliens. So there's just this like sardonic gay man who's just the leader of the aliens rolling his eyes at everything. And I enjoy that um i will say though like it is kind of as the industry has transitioned to digital you lose the fact that even the bad filmmakers are going to be shooting on celluloid so it's like for being a terrible movie it looked amazing like whatever like version they had if you 
like just put it on mute you'd be like oh this is the most beautiful movie i've ever seen versus like they make a bad movie now and it's gonna look terrible um but like some of the stuff where they're like in the graveyard and they're pumping smoke in it's like yeah that looks great because it's film and it's like even the worst things shot on film often look pretty good (laughs) um so yeah i think not watching under ideal conditions for sure i should probably give it another go like at a packed midnight screening or something um, also there was an intro from Ben Mankiewicz and usually I'm very pro intro, but his intro like was very smug and it just made him seem like he thought he was better than the movie. Welcome like, to the dark side, Julie. I'm, <laughs> I'm generally anti Ben Mankiewicz. Same. So that's just same par for the course to me. Yeah. I mean, sometimes he's okay. And like he did some Q and A, I think some of his Q and A's are okay, but like, I, it, don't like get me psyched for it. Don't just be like, you're about to watch a terrible movie. Like what, what is that? Um, so yeah, I'll, I'll give it another go someday, I think. Ask me at some point, doesn't have to be during this, but to do my Ben Mankiewicz impersonation. Uh, I think now's a good time. Now's a great okay. time. All right. So <laughs> the key to a Ben Mankiewicz impersonation is you act like you've never said words before <laughs> because you're reading them for the first time. But as long as you can eventually list some names of famous people, Howard Hawks, Orson Welles, <laughs> Bernie Mac. Like, it doesn't matter who he says, but that's his whole thing. He's like, and I went to the store, got myself a glass of milk. Like, uh, that's really good. Yeah. This is why this is my favorite episode to do. Over this here. is so inside baseball, <laughs> yeah. but if you don't know what he's talking about, look up a video and then you will see why we are laughing so hard. <laughs> I would imagine listeners of this podcast watch TCM. Right? You know, you think, but you never know. You never know. I don't know. Never know. Maybe they fast forward through the intros like you. <laughs> the take after after me. Yeah. Uh, all right. Oh. Let's move on. Oh, we're into the 60s, guys. I, I like announcing the decade. Swing in 60s. The swing in 60s. We're kicking off with uh, uh, a Samuel Fuller joint. We are. Do you, does anyone want to? All right. Well, this is, uh, I'll, I'll talk about it because this is, uh, this is my jam. I like this, uh, uh, this, this is called Underworld USA. And I liked it from the opening scene in which we see a kid, uh, roll a drunk in an alley and then immediately get <laughs> beaten and robbed himself by an even younger kid. <laughs> and I was like, I like this movie's milieu. This is, uh, really, he's, uh, Samuel Fuller really builds, Samuel Fuller really builds out the, the world of the Underworld USA. This seems like a, a whole um uh a whole realm uh in which uh terrible things happen uh constantly uh, shortly after that the boy who got bloodied and uh robbed um sees his own father beaten to death by his by his father's uh i don't know cohorts accomplices sure. uh whatever affiliates. affiliates yeah um then he uh goes to prison in which he and he gleefully watches an old man die there's just so much like we haven't even gotten to like the nine-year-old girl who gets murdered in this movie there's so much like, uh, and that's like dark shit in this movie in, by the way because they had an intro with bill Hader. randomly enough they had a recorded intro of bill Hader, and he pointed out the, the first 10 minutes of this movie cover enough ground to be their own movie like yeah. honestly it's because like a Simpsons it, like, episode yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. um, um yeah, he grows up to uh, be robertson who then tries to hunt down the men who killed his father um along the way meets uh as long as we're talking about attractive people the very charming dolores Dern, who Dorn, who i hadn't been familiar with at all but was uh quite smitten with and unfortunately she had a pretty short career herself damn uh and her character's name is cuddles yeah so <laughs> she's named cuddles cliff robertson is tolly it's just a 
cast full of people with improbable names. Callback, though, I think she might have been briefly married to Fran Tone in real life. Whoa. How about that? Um, but yeah, like David said, it does a great job of kind of building out the whole underworld. It, I think the title is very apt. You know, it, it's like from the people on the streets, the uh, high up politicians. It really, yeah, it really gives a sense of like <laughs> of everyone who fills out uh, a criminal enterprise. And I think like a lot of Sam Fuller movies, the cast is a mix of people who seem like they are literally doing this job in real life and people who are like the ultimate movie version of the job. Like Cliff Robertson doesn't feel like a real cl- criminal at all. But you feel like the most movie criminal ever. <laughs> but then like the guy who's kind of the head of the organization, the kind of bald heavyset guy, he feels like he's running something bad. On oh the yeah, side. that guy was weird. <laughs> I didn't trust that guy. But he's awesome. Oh yeah, but he has like a really weird voice yeah. like a weird nasally voice. Um, yeah, I wrote down on my Robert notes, what a picture. Yeah. Sorry, I, 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 uh, I stepped on your big moment there. What a picture. What a picture. But like, I, I was thinking about it. I'm like, I don't think I've ever disliked a Samuel Fuller movie because they're always entertaining. The man knows what he's doing. Um, yeah, Cliff Robertson, he plays like a psychopath. Like he is like doing very strange things and not really having the appropriate reaction. But like, he, he ends up doing a lot of the right things for the wrong reasons, which is a very like interesting conundrum. And the movie keeps shifting. And it's like, just when you think, you know, what everyone is trying to do, it kind of shifts. Totally. And then in the later part, it gets into a theme. I really tend to love in movies, which is how, like when you are riding high in a criminal enterprise, the same thing that is letting you live the high life could lead to your death at any moment. Like it's all kind of like a house of cards basically and could collapse and you always have to be watching your back. And there's like the paranoia, which comes with that. Um, Also, there's a lot of plot threads about testifying against gangsters, which something I think about when I watch these movies, the witness protection program did not exist until 1970. So when people in like movies before that are like, oh my God, like I would testify, but it'd be a death sentence. Like that is literal. That is, Mm. you go on the stand, you and your whole family die. Like it's not an if, it's a when. Um, So the stakes for that are so high. And there are just all these people in this movie who are weighing whether it's worth it. And some people say, I'll do it for love. And other people say, I'll do it to protect my family. There's one guy who kills himself. So his family doesn't like, that's a whole crazy world. and yeah, it's it's just bleak and down and dirty. Um, it's also, so it's 1961, so it looks like a movie from the 50s, but they, they're they saying the word prostitution repeatedly, which was weird. And they're also talking about getting kids hooked on drugs. They're like, <laughs> oh, let's sit up outside in elementary school. You're like, Jesus Christ. Yeah, the line's something like, needles and care what Armin goes in or something. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, the, yeah, so I can't remember what exactly it was, but um uh, I want to point out uh, a thing. There's a line in this movie that I loved that I, uh, as as uh, kids used to say, uh, made me feel seen. When Clifford Robertson gets out of prison, he's talking to his friend, the old lady who used to run the bar, about her bar, how her bar has now been turned into a coffee shop. And she, they, she says, you know what they do at coffee shops? They sit around all day and just drink coffee. <laughs> as a bar fly myself, I get that. I get that bafflement at just sitting around and just <laughs> drinking coffee. But I also wanted to point out, I don't know if you guys, because uh, I watched this with Natalie and she didn't catch this. So maybe I was um, being overly sensitive, but one of the, uh, one of the crime bosses he's trying to get knocked off is a character named uh, Gila. I think is how they say it to you guys. Was he, was there something homophobic about the way he was coded and characterized and, and, and presented? Um, 
the, the, the thing that raised the red flag is that Cliff Robertson's telling a story about this character being at the pool with some of his young punks. And I know the word punk at this time was sort of making a transition into meaning like ruffian or whatever. But before that has like a sort of uh, uh, homophobic uh, uh, subtext. So I didn't know if, uh, if there was something homophobic about her underworld USA or not. But I actually it did didn't stick know that about me. the world word punks. So I yeah, just... it, it basically just meant like, like if, a if a, if a, uh, uh, wealthy like sort of sugar daddy like gay guy or whatever has the boys that he keeps around just to like fuck them basically those are his punks that's what uh-huh. the word uh, i was not aware of that uh, uh-huh. now, but also the it also has a like a prison term for the person in the prison who just uh, exists to get buggered i'll say instead of the other word um uh by the other male prisoners it has that connotation so i don't know maybe i was just overly sensitive to that term uh, in 1961, I, I only know if they say they're an interior decorator. That's that's the code word I know. <laughs> or if they come on a fragrance. Uh, yeah, I was, I was going to say yeah. If his business card smells like. Last thing I'll humor. say about the movie is it has the great thing they do in old movies, which I wish they would do more often now, where a guy gets shot and staggers an entire city block before dying. Oh, it's more <laughs> oh, than a city. It's block. like forever. Also, he staggers past. So there's a bunch of trash on the ground, and he knocks over a trash can that says "Keep your city clean" on it, and then he dies under yes. a like donate blood or give blood sign. so great yeah <laughs> all right that's too much uh talking about underworld usa well, speaking of crime on the streets <laughs> and the word punk by the way used in the more uh sure the the less hateful uh, version is is in this movie but i didn't watch west Side story for this yes well so i did a because it was the the kickoff movie um and generally i, I like to watch you know the kickoff movie if i can um and I hadn't seen it since high school. And so I was like, I am due a rewatch of this. And I'm glad I rewatched it. Um, a lot of the things that I still think are, are goofy about it are there. But I really appreciated a lot of the other stuff, the, the kind of artistry, like the kind of um, the kind of I don't even know what you want to call it, like the, the electric, the kind of frenetic way that Wise shoots a lot of the, the dancing um, sequences um is is way more on display you know evident to me now than when i watched it when i was younger um it's it's such a gorgeous vibrant um technicolor movie uh as well and so that i mean obviously helped and it's it's stood the test of time in terms of getting restored oh time and again and everything like that um the things that i still find goofy are you you know not the dancing necessarily but like the fact that (laughs) like in the in the what is it be cool the be cool sequence uh-huh. yeah um what physically they do to uh to show off that they are angry and uh getting ready to they're too hot they're gonna have to they're gonna have to kill somebody is they like squeeze their hands together and just like it's writhe around and then it's it's hilarious so it just it's like no one does that ever no one in the history of being alive has ever done stuff like that I know. yeah at this point it is i feel like it's uh, almost hacky to point out like how unthreatening they are as a gang because they dance around. But yeah. that actually is a sticking point for me that I basically, I don't, and it's not because of the dancing, the movie, I don't understand what the jets and the sharks do. Like, are they <laughs> like, when I think of a gang, I think of like a criminal enterprise. Do they right. do anything or they're are they just, just like glorified, like glorified, like clubhouse. Yeah. Like they're just a gang of ruffians, ruffians basically. And, and yeah, so then I mean, when, think- when it gets to the point of them, like, uh, 
killing each other or like almost sexually assaulting or actually sexually assaulting Rita Marina or whatever. I'm like, yeah. what, is, what is this world? I, I do have a, a problem finding an entry point into West Side Story, but uh, it is, uh, yeah, very beautiful. And I'll, um, again, quote from something that my, uh, or I'll paraphrase something my, my wife said. You talked about the dance sequences. My, my, my wife says about this movie that it's all, even when they're not dancing, they're, they're dancing. Yeah, in, totally. In yeah. It's yeah. the, it's one of the most physical just movies I think I've ever seen because, because even just when um, this, you know, like tonight, like that sequence, they're not, there's no dancing, there's singing, but it's like, it's so much about the, the physicality um, and you have such, you know, amazing performers with the exception of Natalie Wood, who's great in other things. I just think she's terrible in this movie, but um, uh but yeah, like it's, I, I, there's a lot that I really liked about it. I'm glad I rewatched it. It is a super long movie though, which is always a downside for me. And uh, uh, I feel musicals. like it moves though. Personally. It moves fast. Yeah, I, I will yeah. agree with that. It moves faster than a lot of them. Um, and, uh, and yeah, I was just kind of blown away by Robert Wise's kind of, you know, uh, the, the way he uh, directs everything differently. Like, like it's not, it, every sequence doesn't just seem like, well, here's another big sequence. It's like, it, they each have their own kind of like um, style to them, which I think I appreciate a lot. Remember when he made Star Trek, the motion picture? Yeah, I and do. It was so boring. Wise is one of my favorite directors and he like none of the movies that he made make sense to me that he made. Them. <laughs> he did the haunting and Star Trek and West Side Story and um, David the, the, the setup, the sound of music and the setup. It just, yeah. just a, a, a wildly, um, and was an editor for a while. Yeah. yeah. Did the reshoots of Magnificent Ambersons. <laughs> yeah. Right. It's he who directed that scene that makes absolutely no sense of Joseph Cotton and yeah. Agnes Moorhead walking down the hallway. <laughs> All right. Well, it looks like it's time for me to stretch out and run the table here. Have for some a while. Fun. I got three movies in a row that are just me, but I'm guessing you guys have seen some because these are not obscure movies. No, I've seen yeah. all um, of those movies. Yeah. Uh, okay. So starting with um, uh, Peck and Paw, uh, which I watched. Uh, uh, two Fullers or two Sams back to back. I watched Underworld USA and Ride the High Country, the Sam Peckinpah uh, movie with Joel McRae and Randolph Scott and uh, Mariette Hartley, I think is her name, and also um, Warren Oates and L.Q. Jones, genre stalwarts. Um, yeah. Uh, and I feel like this is a movie that I think I, um, I appreciated intellectually more than with my. Uh, heart or 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 body or whatever i couldn't quite uh get into it i i i think when i place it in the continuum of revisionist revisionist westerns i i i appreciate where where it does and doesn't line up with that and obviously in the in the continuum of sam, of sam uh peckinball movies obviously it's not these aren't anti-heroes of like wild bunch like they're still heroes but it's still a, but it's also it's a vision of the west in which um uh uh, morality is relative in a spectrum and there are gray areas. Um, the thing that I really found um, fascinating about the structure of the movie is that Joe McGray and Randolph Scott are the ostensible leads of the movie, but there's a huge portion of the back half of the movie that they're just not in. It just becomes Marriott Hartley's story for like 30 minutes. <laughs> um, uh, and then they, they, they come back. And I, I, I liked that because I liked her and also that meant more time with Warren Oates and Elku Jones who were in her, uh, storyline. Um, yeah, I, I, I appreciated that. Um, I, I like the, uh, Peck and Paw style, like sort of bleak shootout ending. Um, uh, 
uh, a lot. I will also point out, look, again, like I said, it being hacky to talk about West Side Story and the, you know, snapping and jumping or whatever. It's it would be pointless to sit around and talk about the TCM cl- Classic Film Festival and talk about things that are problematic in old movies. We'd go on forever. But yeah. there's something that I have to point out that happens in Ride the High Country, in which a character named, uh, the great name, Heck Longtree, uh, is the character's name. Heck Longtree tries to force himself on Marriott Hartley's character. He grabs her, he pins her arms to her side, pins her on the ground, he's kissing her. She's saying no, no, no over and over again. And then Joe McCrane and Alice Scott pull him off of her and they do the right thing by both taking their turns, socking the guy in the face. And then, but then Randolph Scott says, we're not here for romance. <laughs> and I, um, much like Scott watching a comedy at home, I laughed out loud. <laughs> that was, that was Randolph Scott's problem is not the, not that heck long tree, uh, attempted rape. It's that his priorities aren't in order, and we got we got to get this gold to the mining town. <laughs> There'll be time for romance later. Oh anyway, boy, they didn't uh, have romance back then. It wasn't invented yet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> uh, all right. So then, jumping to 1966. Uh, speaking of Billy Wilder, as we were earlier, um, I'd never seen the fortune cookie before. Um, I, uh, having watched it now, I don't feel like I was missing out on that much. Um, I don't know if this is a beloved movie. I feel like it's uh, uh, it's notable for being the first Jacqueline and Walter Matthau pairing, and I think it hums along pretty nicely for about the first half or or so. But it's it's over long. It's over two hours. Um, it 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 runs out of steam, and also then, like after having at least one prominent black character in the entire like throughout the movie suddenly at the end decides to really steer into trying to like make statements about racial equality and civil rights and stuff that feel really patronizing and really forced um and uh also it has i know um I, I, Julie, you were talking about Under, Underworld USA being like looking like the 50s but having 60s type stuff in it. We're still in that transitional period, and I feel like the cuss words in the fortune cookie have the feel of like a second or third grader on the playground, like trying this out for the first time, <laughs> like the Simpsons, like damn hell ass Kings type of type of thing. Like there's like Walter Matthau says, damn it a bunch. And that sounds fine coming out of him saying, damn it. It sounds right. But there's a part where Jack lemon calls his ex-wife a bitch. And I was like, Ooh, <laughs> that doesn't fit <laughs> with what we're watching. This was around the time. Cause the movie that um, Wilder made right before this was kiss me stupid, which is maybe my least favorite of his movies. Um, because, because, but it's like when he tries to be edgy in, in like a, a, a vulgar way, like his, obviously he's, he's kind of risque in a lot of his comedies. And that's part of, you know, like some like it hot has, uh, risque bits that's basically the whole movie but like when he tries to just be vulgar it's bad <laughs> like it just he doesn't know how to do it and it feels like you said like like so a kid trying out cuss words it's like he's yeah. like what if we woman like 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 uh kiss me stupid is just like a vile movie because it's just like cheating on your wife's fun and it's just like but but it's not he like presents it in the least fun possible way and and the fortune cookie i felt just like you're gonna do racial politics as well in this movie like no thanks yeah um yeah i mean his sort of the billy wilder like trademark cynicism is there um and I, i i like that i guess but um uh yeah it definitely felt like uh uh I was looking at my watch or my phone uh, to see what, how much time had passed by the 
the second half or i guess i was hitting the play button on my dvr to see how far into the movie i was in the second half to see how much i had i had left because it uh yeah it goes on a little too long all right um okay and then closing out the 60s and closing out my run here of, of, of three in a row um I watched Peter Yates bullet, which is a movie that I had kind of, I think snobbishly subconsciously like written off as a kid. It seemed like a dad movie. Um, and also it, uh, I think I was more pretentious uh, despite the name of the podcast. I was more, uh, pretentious in an insecure way as a kid. And I was like, Oh, Steve McQueen's just like showing off driving fast cars, you know, looking cool or whatever. And now, (laughs) now I'm to the point where I'm like, yeah, that's, that's what's cool about Steve yeah. McQueen. Yeah. Now I get that when I was, you know, in high school or whatever. And so I, I, I put it off for uh, a long time. Um, and also I think subconsciously I had put it off because I know the most famous thing about bullet is the car chase scene. And I had, uh, when I was like 19 or whatever, when I finally watched the French connection, which is a great movie, I'm not here to like say the French connection isn't great, but when you hear about how great the car chase and the French connection is, and you watch it, it's, I don't know. I felt kind of let down. So I think oh, I subconsciously agree, man. I but, love the car chase and the French connection. Yeah, but here's the thing: it's maybe it's just because I'm being narrow in my definition. The car, the French connection, isn't even a car chase. There's just one car. Well, sure. A car chase is two, at least two cars, <laughs> if not more. That's what that's what constitutes a chase. So anyway, I think I kind of assumed, oh, it'll be some stodgy like early version of a car chase. And now I feel like the car chase alone is worth bullet existing it's so fucking cool and it's so badass and the uh the 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 cars jumping over the hills on the san francisco streets is just like that's what you see from it that's just the beginning it goes on like forever and there's dude like a dude shooting a shotgun out of a window while they're going like 85 miles per hour and like steve mcqueen's like wincing as the windshield breaks but still like driving super fast it's so cool and like it is uh pure cinema and uh worth uh the movie existing on its own for it but the, the rest of the stuff is cool too all right that's my three movie run <laughs> did you guys have anything to say about bullet no i think it's pretty dope yeah it's pretty dope uh, bullet is one of those ones that i would have seen like if it, like i have it on my shelf i don't need to watch it on my tv as part of a thing but if it were i've never seen it projected so i absolutely sure. would have seen it and it's also one of those movies that i've seen quite a few times that i know he's a policeman and i know that there are bad guys. And I, every time I watch it, I go, Oh, that's what the plot is. And then I forget <laughs> it again every single time. So g- good luck rewatching it there, you know, have fun rewatching it in a couple of years, David, because then you'll be like, Oh yeah, this is what this movie's about. <laughs> yeah. I didn't even talk about smarmy, uh, Robert Vaughn. Oh yeah. Um, or, or Vic Tabak. Uh, all right. Um, <laughs> who's next? I'm next. Uh, speaking of sort of legendary movies, we write off, uh, when we we're younger and then maybe get around to watching. I finally watched love story um it's the 70s now but it's the 70s guys. Oh, it's the 70s yes um yeah i i find romance to be a, a deeply interesting genre for a lot of reasons one of which is that especially movies like this which love story was like the most successful movie of all time when it came out and then like so like everybody saw it people must have cared but then like within two years they're making jokes about it in uh what's up doc and like completely writing it off culturally. So there's this cycle that romance movies go through where like everybody in the world goes to see them. And then instantly they're like, whatever, nobody actually liked that. But like somebody liked it when it came out, it had to have hit some nerve. Um, and I think for this in particular, it was tapping into like what a lot of 
middle-class kids like in their 20s or so must have felt like, which is they're not like necessarily revolutionaries. They're not going to protest or throwing bricks or whatever, but they do kind of want the world to change in some way. And they kind of feel distant from their parents and they're going through college for the first time and like having these grand romances. And there weren't really a lot of movies at this point that were reflecting that experience. And so to me, it's not a surprise that this was a huge hit. Um, you know, by the end of the seventies, Hollywood figured out that this was their audience and they keyed in them for the next like two decades. But um, at the time there was kind of this kind of underserved audience. Um, so it's about, yeah, Ryan O'Neill and Alan McGraw, they meet at college or from kind of different backgrounds. He's very waspy and upper class. Um, his dad's played by Ray Milan, which was awesome to see him as an older guy. And then, well, she's Italian and Catholic. So, you know, worlds apart. Spicy. Yeah, very spicy. Um, but, you know, somehow they make it work. They fall in love. And then the movie really falls apart by the time the most famous thing happens was that she gets sick and dies. Um, because well, Not a spoiler. Not a spoiler at all, because they mentioned it at the beginning of the movie. But um, one, we don't know what she's dying of. Uh, Roger Ebert said she's dying of being too beautiful. It's one of those movies where... <laughs> The girl gets more and more beautiful the closer and closer she gets to death to the point that when her death scene happens, I didn't even realize that's what had happened. Like she's, she looks amazing on her bed and there's like having a normal ch chat. And then Ryan O'Neill leaves the building. He's like, she died. And I'm like, I, something has happened here that I have missed. Um, and part of that is the runtime. It's only a hundred minutes. So like the last like 30 are like, she gets sick and dies and it's all very rushed. Um, and it's directed by Arthur Hiller, who's, I've seen a couple of his other movies and it has kind of a similar problem where he gets these screenplays that are pretty clever. And there's a lot of really clever dialogue in this, especially early on. They have uh, Ryan O'Neill and Alan McGraw have a great kind of flirtatious relationship and they have like this great kind of back and forth, but he's like too eager to remind you how clever the screenplay is. So like all the actors are really hitting their lines really hard and there's no like kind of tossed off conversational quality. It's like, check out this line guys. Um, so I do kind of agree with the growing consensus now that it doesn't completely work. Um, certainly the love means never having to say your sorry line is as silly as everyone has pointed out it to be over the years. At the same time, it is the sort of thing one will occasionally stumble into saying when you're in your twenties, which is just a dumb proclamation about love. So I don't totally hold that against the movie. I just, I don't think it totally works on several levels, but, um, like a lot of romance, like I said, it, it's a fascinating object. The fact that it was so successful. And I think it reveals a lot about the culture at the time that so many people glommed onto it. And it saved Paramount, by the way, like Paramount pictures Paramount. would have gone bankrupt. And then this movie came out and it was saved. So if you like Nashville kids, thank love story. And it's also the, the reason that Ryan O'Neill is in Barry Lyndon. Yes. Because Kubrick literally looked at who are the most bankable stars in Hollywood Steve McQueen's not going to do it. Clint Eastwood's not going to do it. I was going to say, Paul Ryan O'Neill. And then he got to the bottom of that list. And yeah. <laughs> I, mean, I, I actually, I love O'Neill in Barry Lyndon. I do too. I yeah. think a lot of the more famous actors wouldn't have been as good, but it is funny, the casting process that ended up with that. Yeah, totally. Because um, on paper, he should not be in that movie. Yeah. It's also arguably how we got The Godfather because Robert Evans produced this and that was his breakout movie as a producer. And Paramount said, oh my God, literally do whatever you want. Yeah, yeah totally. So perhaps the... After the ripple effects of this movie are better than the movie itself. Sure. Um, I haven't seen Love Story in so long. I don't have much to say about it, but I will say uh, in its favor, if you like movies with great autumn wardrobes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> good. It's a good clothes movie. Absolutely. You're all about the fashion today. You're the fashion correspondent. <laughs> <laughs> 
I'll, uh, I'll take it. <laughs> All right, Kyle's up next. For I, also watched, I also watched this one. I, just right. didn't, yeah. I didn't tell you guys. Um, why did you keep it a secret? Um, <laughs> so it's uh, Le Chambre from 1972, which is an 11-minute short film by Chantal Ackerman. And uh, it's I hadn't seen it before, so I was really excited to to watch it. And it is Le Chambre means the room. And it is just a continuous 11-minute 360 degree pan around this room and it's a cool looking you know apartment whatever um and eventually you get around to the bed up by a window and chantal ackerman is in the bed and she's looking at the camera and then pans around and that's it that's the entire 11 minutes and it is the most compelling and like weirdly suspenseful 11 minutes because it's like one of the times it pans around it looks like she's about to do something and it's like, Oh, what's, what's going to happen the next time. And then when it finally comes back around to her, she just changed position in the bed. Like, <laughs> uh, let me tell you, I got so engrossed. I feel, I felt like I dreamed this movie into existence. Right. <laughs> um, I got so engrossed in it. You saw it. Yeah. So like you, you said, cause when I read the description, I thought it was going to be like 11 minutes going one time around the room. It goes right. around the room multiple times. So I, I started getting really like anticipating, like what's she going to be doing in bed right. this time. <laughs> and then at one point the camera stops and changes directions. And I motherfucker, I sat up like, like, <laughs> like, like, the, like it was a plot twist. Yeah, <laughs> I was it feels like, like, Oh it. my God. What's happening now? <laughs> yeah. I, I, uh, yeah. I really, I really, really engrossing movie. Totally. And w- weirdly so. And it was just like, I, you know, and like, it felt like I went on a journey and it was bizarre. Cause it's just this one room and it's, but, um, and it looks really great too. And like, I don't know what kind of film stock she was using or whatever, but like, it's just, it was just a, a like very saturated kind of color to it as well. And so it looked like every, every frame was a painting. I almost said out loud and meant it. Um, <laughs> but that is what it looks like. It looks like you, you could look at the, just a still image of her by the, in the bed, by the window and you, could maybe for a second go that could be a painting or anything like that but yeah um, it's been a while since i saw it you guys are making me want to watch it again yeah it's i mean it's on hbo max it also made me think about like um what did people do at home before there were like laptops and computers and like i think about like, that all the time <laughs> like i guess they laid in bed and ate apples and then made <laughs> short films like like you know there were books right and yeah i know and that's books? actually okay. like I also like grew up without the internet and read books all the time. So I know what the answer is, but it's, uh, uh, I guess I'm just trying to think of myself at that age, at Chantal Ackerman's age there, I would have found, uh, her apartment, uh, charming, but boring. (laughs) Yeah. So you're right, the fashion correspondent and the architecture yeah. correspondent. <laughs> in uh, 30s movie parlance, you would be gay for sure. Yeah, yes. in, for interior. <laughs> yeah. Um, so next is Scarecrow from 1973. Um, this is kind of like an offbeat buddy pick with Al Pacino and Gene Hackman. Um, what's even weirder about that pairing is that Hackman plays an aggressive, horny womanizer and Al Pacino plays a sweet little goof, <laughs> which is not the dichotomy I would have expected. And it's like, I think we all know that Al Pacino can be very funny in like in a really intense blowhard way. But I was surprised here. He's really funny in a gentle way because he's really young um, and he's just like so sweet and gentle. Um, this won the Palm Door at Cannes, um, but it's not very well remembered now. Um, parts are really funny and parts are really sad. Um, 
I, I think it's good at finding kind of the drama and the pathos in like in between moments because when they, the two of them first meet, they're both trying to hitchhike in a very abandoned place. So they're both competing to get picked up by a car and you just see them and it's like kind of a silly scene. But then the next thing you see, they're in the back of a truck together. It doesn't even show when they actually successfully flag down a truck. You just figure out they just decided, okay, fine, we'll be together. Um, both Pacino and Hackman cited it among their favorite movies later. Um, it was originally planned as a much goofier movie starring Jack Lemmon and Bill Cosby. Yikes. Um, so I'm glad that didn't happen. Um, yeah, I really enjoyed it. I think it had a very abrupt ending and I was like, okay, we're, I, it's, it's a choice. We're making a choice. I don't know if I agree with the choice. I but... agree with the choice. I love yeah. the abrupt ending. Um, <laughs> I also uh, really, really like this movie. I, I mean, I'm a big fan of movies about, I, I guess guys specifically, but uh, certainly women as well. But movies about people who find relationships that they don't know they wanted and try to convince themselves they don't want, but come to learn on some level they need, even if they don't acknowledge it. And the movie really parsed that out very well. Definitely uh, loved Pacino. I mean, I love both of them, but you do get a sense in this of how good a stage actor Pacino must be I, I don't want to say have been because he's still alive but certainly his acting style has evolved over the years but you see like what people were going to the theater in late 60s in new york and be like we got to get this guy in movies because he's such a dynamic electric physical performer very engaged um yeah i totally thought it was awesome yeah this was uh as i mentioned with it's always fair weather there were only a couple movies that i gave five star ratings to on letterboxd after after tcm and, and scarecrow is uh is, is one of them um Tyler and I were talking recently. I can't remember what we were talking about, about um, um, because of, you know, toxic masculinity and whatnot. There aren't that many great movies about tender male friendship. Um, and there's uh, there's something very tender about where these uh, where these characters end up um, together by the end. Um, it's also a. Um, uh, I, I, you talked about um, Al Pacino's performance. The uh, there's a there's a physicality to Gene Hackman's performance. He's not, he's not the boisterous one, but there's um, uh, a, a way that he holds himself that you can, you can track his sort of character arc over the course of the movie by him becoming a little bit more like standing up a little straighter, being a little more, 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 more limber, less uh, uh, slouchy as the movie goes on. And he has one big, big physical moment, which is maybe yeah. the highlight of the movie. So uh, funny. Me. Yeah. Big uh, dancing around a bar. Um <clears throat> I really like that. I'm glad uh, this one was a, uh, um, it wasn't on my to watch list uh, uh, initially. And I uh, credit Natalie was saying uh, we should watch this um, partially because years ago, Natalie and I went to a double feature at LACMA of electric light and blue was the first one. And Scarecrow was second. And I don't know if you've seen Electric Light and Blue. Starts off okay, but it's mostly, I think it's hogwash and it has like a ridiculous faux profound ending that we both kind of hated. And so the movie ended and we were like, do you want to just go to a bar? <laughs> like we didn't stay for Scarecrow. And like, obviously that was the wrong decision all these all, all these year, years later. But um, uh, yeah, we're not here to talk about Electric Light and Blue, but I think uh, Kyle disagrees with me. I think he likes Electric Light. Oh, no, I was just th thumbs up that I have seen it. That was, oh, okay. that was it. I mean, it starts, it's just like the, the beginning, the first like act of the movie is just a series of vignettes of Robert Blake being like a goofball, like highway patrolman. Um, and, uh, and then like a plot kicks in and it's really stupid. But we're not here to talk about Electric Light and Blue. <laughs> um, I would also say like 
So for most of the movie, like they're, they're trying to travel across the country, but they have no money. So they're hitchhiking and they're just trying to get through the country however they can. And in retrospect, it almost kind of reads like a eulogy for that lifestyle because hitchhiking and they also like literally like ride the rails. Like they do the thing where they like hop on a train, you know, and it's like that would disappear like a few years later. So this is really at the tail end of that. And you kind of like get to see it like memorialized, which is like, you know, like you kind of associate that with an earlier era, I think. So to see them doing it very much in the 70s is kind of interesting. Um, I also say they there's some really great like character details. Like so Al Pacino is carrying a giant box with a lamp in it his entire journey. Like he doesn't really have any stuff with him except this giant box with a lamp. And then Hackman is. And it's also I should I should point out it's a it's a white box in uh, like Phillips Holmes shirt in her man. <laughs> it, the box like sort of gets more and more smudged and, and crumble and collapse as the as the movie goes on. True. Um, and then Gene Hackman, his character is always cold. So he's always wearing all of his shirts all of the time, <laughs> um, which is really great. Um, yeah, I, I really enjoy it. Recommend it. Uh, also, I um, uh, watch this. I, I like pointing out just weird. Uh, whenever I see a bunch of movies at a festival, I like when when weird things uh, uh, pop up at the same time. So the um, the uh, the fountain in Belle Isle um, uh, in, uh, in Detroit, where the sort of big uh, Al Pacino's last big scene is, is also in T Men. There's a part oh. at the beginning of the movie before it comes to Los Angeles that they're tracking a counterfeiting uh, ring in Detroit and they go to the same uh, fountain. Weird. All right. Scarecrow. That's next. Yes. So um, the next one for me was one that I was like, maybe at the top of the list of ones I wanted to check out um, because you, I forget which, which TCM fest it was at, but I missed it. Um, they screened it and I went and saw something else and I don't even remember why I missed this one, but um, this is the man who would be King from 1975 directed by John Huston starring um, Sean Connery and Michael Caine based on a Rudyard Kipling story. Um, and the story has a nameless narrator um but in the movie uh it's christopher Plummer playing rudyard kipling um and it's it's basically about these two guys um kane and connery who are are rogue knaves kind of guys who you know uh worked for risks yeah ne'er-do-wells um who alleywags yeah (laughs) (laughs) any any number of adjectives really um uh but they uh, they're in india in the 1880s so it's particularly british and particularly racist and uh they uh decide to go become kings of uh a part of basically northern part of afghanistan uh that nobody uh has touched and so they're basically going to stroll in there no white man has been there since alexander the great is what they say yeah yes exactly and um and that's a big plot point but so they they go there the idea is that they side with one faction of the locals uh, teach them how to be warriors or whatever take out the other side and then just take like overthrow the guy that they helped install um, and then get all the riches all the alexander the great riches um and in the course of doing so sean connery the the people the the um 
clerics or whatever the uh, the holy people there believe him to in fact be the descendant of Alexander the Great for various silly reasons. Um, there's a lot of uh, Freemason stuff in there, and that's like a big plot point. And they're not like there's no commentary from Houston or anyone else like, hey, Freemasonry is kind of weird and bad. Never like everything's just as exactly as Rudyard Kipling had written it. So I guess that's fine. But um, uh, and then uh, you know he's not a god or a king he's in fact a fallible human and things do not go well um but it's a, it's a big like adventure story and um uh kane and connery are just absolutely fabulous in it as these kind of like i mean kane of course has done that kind of like quick talking cockney you know um you know alfie for god's sake i mean he's, he's not that far removed from that connery this was a completely different type of character than i'd ever seen from him um and it makes me want to check out more of his stuff post bond pre kind of you know um i don't even know what like i guess pre untouchables or something like that but um there's a lot of that stuff in that period that of his that i haven't seen and um the, the two of them together are truly like magical um and uh that was that was fantastic i mean there's a lot of like objectionable content in the movie and it's because rudyard kipling was you know a racist brit in india so like like i kind of was like well this is what this movie is okay and there's there's absolutely no kind of um uh commentary about it or anything like that it just is what it is but the performances are and I mean, it looks gorgeous and it's shot on location, and everything like that. But um, you cannot you cannot have better uh, a pair of better um, performances than those two. And so I was I was pretty bowled away by it. Yeah, I, I saw it only for the first time uh, fairly recently. And um, yeah, I knew it was a brother. Kip, Rudyard Kipling has this grand title i knew it was kind of like an adventure story having seen it i think i would classify it first and foremost as a buddy comedy absolutely yeah um but with a lot of racist shit <laughs> just so much so much racist stuff um but um but yeah i mean like but then you're you're also like oh they're freemasons like so yeah i get it you know kind of thing but anyway um yeah i thought it was really good really i mean and something that I even more in retrospect wish that I had gotten to see it at TCM fest on the big screen, because I'm sure it looked great. All right. Uh, this is my last movie, although I've seen two of the movies that are upcoming. So I might say something about them. Um, but the last movie for me, another Chantal Ackerman, um, news from home, 1977, um, uh, a documentary Chantal Ackerman made, I guess about her time living in New York, uh, uh that is composed entirely of shots of, new york city um uh and accompanied by uh someone i don't know if it's chantal ackerman or someone else reading uh her mother's letters pretty sure it is her um i, I kind of figured but i forgot to look that up before we did this um reading the letters her mother wrote her while she was uh living in 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 new york and there um the movie is uh uh it's my I think my third and final five star movie. It's um, uh, I, I guess uh, I think uh, trying to describe it as formalistic, but it doesn't feel like schematic in that in that way. Um, it has a, a natural organic feel to it, but you come to realize why the choices were made the way that they that they were. That we're hearing we're hearing uh chantal mother but not ever 
seeing her, nor are we seeing Chantal Ackerman, um, because that's Chantal Ackerman's experience of, of, of New York City at the time. She's not in her own field of vision, obviously, but also it, be, it became uh, uh, clear to, uh, the, the thing that dawned on me later on is that like, oh, we're seeing something that Chantal Ackerman's mother didn't get to see. Like as much as there's like early on, there's something kind of funny about the like sort of needling, you know, and the like, when are you going to come home? And -and so-and-so misses you and uh, everyone's tired. Everyone's always described as tired um, in, in her, in, in, in her letters. And it, and it becomes, it's, it's kind of funny at first, you know, anyone who's like moved away from home probably has this this, uh, experience of like getting guilt trips from family or, or whatever, or just getting like um, updates on the minutiae of people back uh, uh, home and that sort of stuff. But it be, it became sad as it, went on i realized like oh this isn't just uh like oh mom like she really really misses her daughter and her daughter has this whole like physical life that we're seeing we're seeing the people in the in the in the subways and 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 in the streets of of new york and uh all we know and i guess jen talkman's mother is living her life as well but as for all we know she's just huddled in front of her desk writing these letters because that's maybe what Chantal Ackerman's guilt was maybe that's what the guilt trip is conjuring up in 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 her mind um uh, uh and so uh it goes from being like oh she's uh it's kind of you know funny or you know she's she's pestering to being very um uh heartfelt to like there are long stretches of time and sometimes very short stretches of time between letters. There are stretches where we don't hear anything. Um, and you, I, I found myself, I, I came to really miss her voice as, as the movie went on. Um, I also wonder what the experience is of uh, someone watching this movie in Belgium or France where it wouldn't be subtitled because often the sound of the, of the car engines or the subway trains are so loud that I'm not sure that everything can be, I'm not sure that if I didn't have a subtitle and I spoke French that I would be able to understand everything in the letters. And I wonder like that seems maybe in, intentional that it's, that she's sometimes drowned out. Um, uh, anyway. Yeah. Uh, default to say that most aesthetic it. choices in a Chantal Ackerman movie are very purposeful. Right. Right. <laughs> Yeah, this is one of my uh, yeah. favorite movies of all time. It's my favorite Ackerman film. And uh, I don't really have anything to add to what you said because you said it so well, but just want to say to people that they should absolutely seek it out is incredible. All right. 1980s. Everyone the 80s. do a line. <laughs> um, yeah. So I alone watched Fame doing jazz hands right now you can't see um so yeah i watched fame i had never so, seen that's a song by live right i alone watched fame <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> kyle the people that we are talking to are about four or five years younger than we are and yeah. probably don't know that song i'm not going to apologize for my youth <laughs> um, no regrets for our youth yeah. So Alan Parker directed this and he had a very eclectic career. He did a full fledged musical a few years earlier with Bugsy Malone, which is one of the all time great weird movies. So this is about students at a performing arts high school or based on a real performing arts high school in New York. And I wanted to like it more, but the problem was that I think it was executed kind of all wrong because they cover like a dozen students over all four years 
But the movie's only two hours long. So it's like if you took all six seasons of Glee and condensed it down to two hours. Um, so the net effect, it becomes very episodic. It doesn't, the characters don't really have arcs because there's so many of them. And it's like, you see so many of them will have these dramatic moments. And in some of them, I'm like, I'm sorry, who are you? <laughs> like they'll, this, this kid has a big confrontation with his mother and he like says she's too religious and she doesn't like trust doctors. And you've never seen the mother before. He's never mentioned the mother before. So it's like these things, they don't like carry any weight. Um, it's also the beginning is really strange. The beginning covers the auditions and they show a bunch of kids auditioning and their auditions are going really poorly. And I'm like, oh, this is like a gag. We're like laughing at how bad they are. But then they all get in and they're the main characters. Like I that was confusing. Um, I will give it credit like it does tackle some tough issues for 1980, um, kind of cutting edge issues. There's abortion, there's domestic abuse, sexual assault, there's a sympathetic gay character. Um, notably when they turned it into a TV show two years later, all of that was gone. Um, so even though some of the same characters were in it, they just suddenly weren't gay and suddenly hadn't been abused. Um, it is, you know, for 1980, it's very ethnically diverse. The school is very diverse. Um, there's a bit of ickiness around that that may cancel it out. Um, Anne Mira is in it, and she's really funny. She's an English teacher, and she says some very dicey stuff to a Black student. But there's also a weird bit where a student says her stepmother is Chinese, but, quote, got her eyes fixed. And then you see the stepmother, who's played by Holland Taylor, <laughs> um, notable not Chinese person, Holland right. Wow. Um, so that was weird. Um, there's also, interestingly, there's a, an extended sequence where some of the characters go see the Rocky Horror Picture Show. And so by 1980, this is only five years after that came out, but kind of the whole like midnight movie, like acting it out, the whole thing people do now, the ritual around it was firmly established. And apparently Alan Parker had like just gone to that and was like, this is wild and like put it in the movie. But I realized like, people probably wouldn't have like, like mainstream America probably didn't know about it yet. So probably like, what the hell is this? Um, kind of ironically for the subject matter, none of the actors really went on to have significant careers. Um, I mean, Alan Parker did say the title was supposed to be ironic. He said it focuses more on the pain than the success, which I guess. Um, but apparently Michelle Pfeiffer, Tom Cruise, and Patrick Swayze all auditioned for it. <laughs> so that could have been very different. Um, Irene Cara is probably the MVP. She has... She sings the title song, then she has two other songs and she dances and probably is one of the more interesting arcs. Um, yeah, I, I wanted to like, I just didn't think the execution was that great, but I was rarely bored. Um, it's very 80s, um, has great singing and dancing. Um, it also made me slightly nostalgic because while I did not go to a performing arts school, I did go to kind of an artsy college with a big theater program. And just that feeling of like all the theater kids running around all the time doing weird things, but everyone just accepts it is like a milieu I came became accustomed to. I mean, Scott and I met in college, he can probably back me up there. Um, so, what if yeah. he didn't? <laughs> He's like, no, that didn't happen at all. No, lies. Lies. Um, so yeah, I don't know that I can like wholeheartedly recommend it, but it's, you know, it's a brisk two hours. So yeah. Well, one I can wholeheartedly recommend is a deep favorite of mine, Grease 2, Patricia Birch's fantastic sequel to the middling uh, original Grease. So Shots fired. This, uh, this Full on agreement, by the way. Yeah, right on. This does what every sequel should do, which is that the first was crazy successful. 
And so they told Patricia Birch, who uh, was the choreographer in the original, um, I don't know how she got the directing gig exactly, but, they, but apparently we're just like, bring as much of the original cast back as you can and then do whatever you want. Uh, and most of the original cast didn't return. It's like mostly bit players from the original. You know, Eve Arden as the principal is there uh, and Frenchie's back, but that's about it. Um, and then from there, she goes running with kind of a movie that's a half 60s teen movie parody and then almost like Jim Steinman levels of rock romance earnestness. It's um, very strangely passionate in parts and like strangely touching, but then just completely wacky. And like half the songs are about, are very thinly to the point of not even being veiled uh, allusions to sexual activity. Like when they all go bowling and sing, let's score tonight. Um, or when a guy is trying to talk his girlfriend into having sex in a bunker because they're all going to die saying, let's do it for America. Um, it's, uh, it's an insane movie. And I think within the, attempts it makes it pretty much hits on all levels it helps that birch is still an excellent choreographer and knows how to move the camera in concert with her actors um it's not just a matter of having great composition she has those but when the camera moves she gets as much as she can in a single frame and keeps up with the actors and keeps the frame being super dynamic and colorful and exciting um yeah i just think top to bottom it totally works and it helps that it stars michelle pfeiffer who is super hot in the movie I'll say it. She's still alive. She's hot. Okay. Um, I, I mean, I agree, hot. but you, you had to say it first. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and just super compelling. And you can see why she quickly became a star hereafter. And they gender swapped the original Grease. So now she's the like cool sexual aggressor. Yes. Yeah. That's what I remember. Like, it's been a long time since I've seen it. That's one thing I remember like loving. I loved all the sexual innuendo. It feels like it's only four years in between Grease and Grease 2, but this movie feels like it's from a different era. Well, yeah, so like it kind of takes place in half the 60s and half the 80s. Like Michelle Pfeiffer wears these right. sunglasses that could not exist in the early 60s. <laughs> and she's wearing pants the whole time, which they kind of make allusions to it not being like an allowed fashion choice at a American high school. Um, but just the way people talk, the way they dress, the way their hairstyles are, it's very uncommitted to a time period, which I also admire. I have a theory, though, that like 80s fashion in movies is so powerful that period pieces can't resist. Like every movie made in the 80s, it doesn't matter when it's set. The people look like they're from the 80s. Like I got halfway through a Christmas story before I realized it was a period piece. <laughs> honest to God, because of the giant hair. <laughs> so. That's all Piece I got to say is the it. word too. That's all I have yes. to say. Well, uh, you're up for the next oh, one Oh, I am too, up right? next. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I watched a couple movies from the uh, L.A. Rebellion kind of subsection that I hadn't seen before. Um, first, which is Bless Their Little Hearts, uh, Billy Woodbury film that is about um, kind of a lower class, I wouldn't say poor, black family living in the Watts area in Los Angeles. Um, the father spends the entire film trying to find a job and it just gets more and more hopeless. But it's not like... You know, there's an element of the film that's inspired by kind of the, uh, what do I want to say? Italian New Realism? That was a thing, right? New Realism. Played <laughs> <laughs> enough that I'm losing, yeah, I think it was a thing. losing yeah. track of film movements. Um, <laughs> where he's not just like purely victimized. You get a sense that his circumstances are tough. He, you know, doesn't have a lot of education, doesn't have a lot of training. Even when people ask him like what kind of job he wants to get, he's like, just work, you know? He just wants to find some way to make a living. Um, but he also, you know, is romancing another woman in the neighborhood, kind of wasting what little money he makes on her a little bit. Um, so it's got a lot of texture to it and a lot of really great, um, 
I always try to avoid using the word quotidian because I feel like it's overused by film critics, but it has that kind of everyday texture of... I've stopped saying it because I've heard you complain about it. I've stopped like, writing the word quotidian because you got in my head, Nye. Settle down, guys. Um, <laughs> it's got kind of like found moments that are just kind of part of the texture of these people's lives. So picking up the house when they're exhausted after a long day of work or um, kids overhearing the parents fighting and it has an argument between the couple that's really, really, really well done. Um, it has the kind of sense of the overlapping dialogue and the way people are constantly trying to get in the last word and constantly trying to dominate the space. Um, and it's really messy. Fight. It probably goes on for at least five minutes. Um, yeah, it's, it's a really striking film and I'm glad I finally got around to seeing it and it's well, uh, well worth preserving in the classic film festival environment on a very different side of the spectrum. <laughs> Indeed. Um, so yeah, I just, I also want to say really quickly, I know there are like some purists at the TCM Fest who are like, they won't watch like anything past the 70s. And it's like, y'all, it's been like 30, David Bax, 40 years. for example, you know. That's, that's, my rule is 25 years. So I would watch a movie from- No, I know. It's just yeah. because- 96. You know, it was an easy shot to take. Yeah, but there are yeah. people like that. And I'm just like, whatever. I'm just watching what seems interesting. But I'm so like that, that about, they showed Antoine Fisher this year, which like- yeah. Uh, that's less yeah. than it's 2002 and also like i it doesn't feel like a classic because i saw it in the theater when it came out well that you're just getting old, just getting old. yeah i guess i'm getting old <laughs> um but all of this is to say that is how we came to watch inner space which neither of us had ever seen before um the premise of inner space which was the premise that the screenwriter ran with is what if we did fan the movie fantastic voyage where people are miniaturized and injected into a human but instead of being asleep, the human is awake and moving around. I also read it pitched as what if we injected Dean Martin into Jerry Lewis? Yes, which I enjoy very much. Um, <laughs> but apparently the original script was not a comedy. Like they arrived at the comedy thing later. It was literally just Fantastic Voyage, but the guy's awake. And then they made it funny. And that was a good decision because the guy they get injected to is Martin Short. Um, and the guy, they it's just one guy they inject into him and it's Dennis Quaid, which is like, I'm so much more used to seeing Dennis Quaid Dennis Quaid as like a crusty old Christian dad now that I'm like, Oh, he's like hot and like young and goofy. He's yeah. like really goofy. Um, apparently he was on set for most of the stuff he filmed with Martin short. They just put him in a little booth so they could be like communicating because event pretty quickly, they figure out how to communicate. Um, I, I'm going to sound a thousand years old. Sorry, but like they don't make him like this anymore. Kids <laughs> like, you know, at least not on the reg. Cause like, Listen, like I see Marvel movies and I like them, but it's like they don't just give directors money and say make a thing unless they're Christopher Nolan in terms of like big blockbuster sci-fi things. Um, it's no it's no world building. We're not doing canon or fandom or merch. It's just go do a movie. And like even the ostensibly wacky movies like Guardians of the Galaxy, they just feel so sterile compared because this is Joe Dante and Joe Dante loves movies and he loves making movies. And it's kind of what I talked about, like with Ed Wood, it's just like that enthusiasm and just pure joy is there. Um, but it's also like really thrilling in places because there's like all these weird plot threads with like people are trying to steal the technology. Um, the villain is played by Kevin McCarthy of Invasion of the Body Snatchers fame, and he is so funny. Um, he just says the weirdest things and it's hilarious. Um, yeah, and he's kind of a Joe Dante part of the, part of the yeah. stable as is Robert Ricardo who plays the cowboy in interspace. Um, yeah. I didn't watch interspace for TCM, but I watched it, uh, 1 million times when I was a kid. So I, <laughs> roughly one, roughly yeah. 1 million times. Uh, yeah. And it also, the, the visual effects are amazing and they actually won an Oscar. Um, 
a lot of animatronics, apparently all the stuff like inside the body, Joe Dante was like, that's just a lot of jello. <laughs> um, but it looks great. And apparently, well, Meg Ryan is in it also. And she and Dennis Quaid fell in love on the set. So that's kind of fun, even though they're in like one scene together. Um, so, you know, it'd be, you know, it'd be a good double feature is what? inner space and proof of life. <laughs> the movies that got them together and drove them apart. Yeah. <laughs> Sure. Um, but yeah, I just, it was a really fun time. Just a real, no strings attached, goofy, thrilling, fun time. Yeah. I also completely loved it and yeah, I hadn't seen it before. I feel like it's not talked about as one of Dante's better pictures, but I think it's up there. Um, yeah. I, maybe it's because it doesn't have as like complex a theme as like matinee or the burbs and it doesn't have the, like the utter anarchy of gremlins too. But in terms of a movie that takes his premise and it's like, what else can we do with this guy? And just keeps laughing about that the whole time and keeps coming up with more and more astounding special effects to achieve that. Um, it's as, as good as it gets. It's also, it's, it's a bummer to me to the, that Joe Dante and Martin Short, this is the one overlap. Yeah, because right? I feel like their sensibilities work so well together. And apparently I think Joe Dante like kept turning down the script until they like tweaked it to a place where he was happy with it. And Steven Spielberg actually was like, I think an executive producer and he's, one of the people who kind of urged it along. Yeah. I mean, that's why they got all that money because oh, at that yeah. time, Steven Spielberg could get anything. <laughs> he still kind of can. Uh, not as much. Like 90% of what he's yeah. able to get. But yeah, very fun time. Highly recommend. Well, this, that's the last one I've seen. So see you guys. Bye. <laughs> <laughs> Bye. Bye, David. No. Uh, uh, hearing back to the LA rebellion stuff. And, into the nineties. Into the nineties. Um, hey, it's the nineties. It's the nineties. <laughs> Everyone in, in on TV shows for the entire nineties was constantly saying yeah. it's the nineties. You just yeah. had to remind yeah. people, you know, yeah. And never, never explained what that meant. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if you don't know, we can't explain it. Right. <laughs> anyway, uh, watch a movie called to sleep with anger. Um, Charles Burnett movie starring Danny Glover, um, who plays this kind of drifter guy who randomly shows up at, the doorstep of some old friends and just kind of slowly moves in with them quietly, not quite wrecking their lives, but greatly inconveniencing them. And then uh, I don't really know how to describe it from there, partially because I was incredibly sleepy while I was watching this, but partially because it's the emotional tenor it hits is very abstract. And it kind of reminded me of like a artsy play you would watch where like you're watching these people go about these seemingly mundane interactions, but then it kind of, the tone of it and the way that things are pitched in terms of performance kind of adds up to this kind of purgatorial feel of like these people are trapped together and we're all kind of trapped with them and there's something evolving in all their relationships but can't quite put a finger on it. Um, I'd love to see it again because I thought it was really effective but I can't quite identify why it was so much so. Yeah, I really liked it. I think I was fully awake so I don't know if that helps <laughs> but um, I think what they did, so Danny Glover, he's, he's, I guess he's kind of the lead. He plays the, the drifter, you know, and like Danny Glover, very charming man. We all love Danny Glover, but I think there's two kinds of like villains in fiction. There's kind of the mustache twirling, like very outwardly evil theatrical type. And then there's the ones that are just super nice until they aren't. And basically all of his dialogue, pretty much everything he says and does on paper is not like sinister or mean or off-putting but you're watching the movie and you're like i feel weird right now and i think that's a testament to charles burnett it's a testament to danny glover you're like why is this 
nice man doing all these things that are making me uncomfortable. <laughs> and it is, yeah, it is very abstract. I like that you compare it to like an artsy play. Um, and I, I also think, um, because TCM, they did an interview with Danny Glover and kind of a career retrospective. And he said when he first read the script, it haunted him, which is, again, very surprising to me because I feel like on paper it would not like translate at all. Um, but it was enough to get him interested and help him. Uh, he helped finance it. I also think it explores it's kind of a common trope, this idea of like this interloper comes into a family and the community and like stirs up all the shit and then you know, they think it's his fault. And then they're like, well, we'll just get rid of him. And then all the problems will be solved. But it's like, will they? Um, this is a very weird parallel to draw, but we recently rewatched the Frank Grimes episode of The Simpsons. <laughs> and I thought of that because it's like, Frank Grimes is this guy who just shows up and just points out all the problems, all the hypocrisy exposes, like everything that's wrong with the people of Springfield. And then they're like, oh, man, this guy's got a bad energy. And then he dies. And they're like, well, thank God he's gone. And it's like they just like wash their hands of it. And I feel like it's a similar thing here where it's like they go through so much. But have they really reckoned with the rifts and the issues in their family that he has stirred up? Um, I also think and this is probably something I'm not academically qualified to comment on, but there seems to be kind of like a friction, um, a commentary on the friction in the African-American community between Christianity and between like mysticism and voodoo, because, you know, it's like that community has been like exposed to so many different religions. And it's kind of like this weird mishmash of cultures. And there's parts where like different characters are, like calling each other out about it. They're like, oh, like you're treating it. You're treating that illness that way instead of praying and like that's another thing that he like drives a wedge in. But yeah, I thought it was really interesting, really cool, really unique. Yeah. Totally. And then the last movie, the last movie was my favorite of the festival. How about that? 1991's Dogfight, directed by Nancy Savoka. Um, I'm going to give away the premise, even though the premise isn't clear until like a half hour into the film, <laughs> but it's uh, still really well done. I think well watch, worth watching even if you know what's going on. Uh, basically, uh, River Phoenix plays a young Marine. He's, I think, said to be 18 or so. And he and his fellow Marines have this kind of recurring event where they uh, try to bring the ugliest girl they can find to a party. Which was a real thing, by the way. Was, yeah, and the, sc the screenwriter yeah. based the film on his own experiences as a Marine. Um, and, uh, so River Phoenix is kind of trolling this town looking for, or he's in San Francisco, he's looking for the youngest girl he can find. Lands on Lily Tellier, which in my opinion, huge failure, not going to win that competition for River Phoenix. <laughs> blew it. But, um, <laughs> a, as he kind of like starts to get to know her, even accidentally, she's just, you know, she's excited to be asked out. She can't stop talking. And, um, he just slowly starts to find kind of commonalities with her and kind of like, really starts to like her and um the film is very much like a before sunset kind of set up of the two of them just walking around town kind of getting to know each other having long conversations about whatever's going on and getting into a bit of mischief as young people will and it's just i found it so 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 sweet and uh terribly romantic and it's one of those things that's tough to describe because it's just gotten so right between the two of them um that whatever else is going on is kind of immaterial in terms of trying to describe it but it's really about the two of them and the connection they hit on. Yeah, I enjoyed it as well, I would say, because it's set in like 
during the Vietnam War, like in the early days of Vietnam. Like, so, yeah, yeah, it right starts in 63. Right. And then ends a few years later. Yeah. So it definitely has this very kind of like swoony, like period piece feeling. Um, I It also explores his relationship with his three close friends and his platoon. I don't know. His unit. His, his, sure. He's three close friends. And um, just this phenomenon of how like men in groups are idiots, especially young men and how sometimes like they're maturing and they're growing, they're being held back by this group dynamic. Like, and then how, when some of them, like when you get them separately, they're actually much more mature and they kind of want to move on from this dynamic, but they're kind of trapped by their dumb friends. Um, I, the only thing, like my only issue with it was that because of the setup, they it's like the first half hour whatever is like lily taylor being like unbelievably wronged and then i feel like the rest of the movie is like trying to make up for that like it just creates a power imbalance where she kind of feels like a saint and they're like a little reticent to give her too many flaws um I don't know if anyone agrees with that. I see where you're coming from, but I think the texture of her performance is enough to fill in like a real person. Um, yeah, I really like the scene where they go to dinner and she becomes impatient with him and like starts kind of acting out in her own way. Um, even if it's not like a quote unquote flaw, it's a personality quirk. Sure. Yeah. And it's like, again, not a huge issue I have with it. Um, Brendan Fraser is in it for two seconds, which is weird. Um, he plays a, another Marine. Um, oh, he, plays a, he plays a sailor. Oh, that's right. Heaven forbid I confuse the two. That's a big <laughs> thing in the, in the movie. Um, but yeah, they, they had a Q&A, a new Q&A with Nancy Savoka. And she said, like, when it was first released, it didn't really get any traction, but it has kind of, like, found a following in the years since. And she said it was like sending off, like, an adult child into the world and suddenly being, like, hearing they're doing really well and be like, how did that happen? Um, but yeah, it's just very... Sweet, straightforward, River Phoenix, RIP. Yeah. Very yeah. talented, very hot. <laughs> this was the other one that I would not have watched had Scott not tweeted about it. Hey. Because um because kind of in the same vein, like I'm not necessarily like I have to only watch old movies at a TCM fest, but I was like, that's just where my let that's the that's the kind of um time period that i'm most interested in right now anyway is just kind of like as evidenced by most of the stuff i talked about was like between you know the the teens and the 40s for the most part um but i was like yeah i'll watch the you know give it a watch and i was completely you know other than the general premise didn't know what to expect and i just i loved it i i truly thought it was this this was my favorite of the fest and um just everything about it like it it is so sweet it is kind of straightforward i was reading some of the contemporary criticism of at the time and they a lot of people were saying like the performances are good but it doesn't do anything and i just like it doesn't need to do anything but i realized it was like just before all of those kind of like sundance type of just hair oh, yeah. ladies so it was you know it just kind of missed the boat there and it's a period piece so it kind of has that kind of level of i don't know separation to it um it gets a little serious toward the end in terms of like the actual vietnam war aspect of it um but like julie was saying i really like the the like we spend most of the time with river phoenix and lily taylor as we ought to but we still cut back to his dumb friends and we get to see like what he would have been doing had he not met her kind of thing like and then the tragedy of it is that like he has this great night i mean i don't want to give it all away but like um 
all of the promises that you think he's going to have before he goes on this trip. It's like, yeah, but once you, once the guys are just around their dumb friends again, kind of all that kind of falls back and they just kind of do their old stupid shit again. So, um, I thought that was really good. And it, I mean, Anthony Clark is in it. If you, if you have, uh, remember Boston common, <laughs> he was the lead of that. He's a stand-up comedian. He's the, the very Southern guy. Mm-hmm. Um, but I like the fact that they're, they're all friends. They're called the killer bees. And we eventually find out at the party that the only reason they're friends is because it's alphabetical order and they stood yeah. Yeah. each other. And it's just like, that's sometimes all dumb idiot men need is just <laughs> these people stood by me literally. And apparently um, the four of them, they sent them to boot camp for a week yeah. to make like get them to bond. And like I think it worked. <laughs> I think it did too. But and and but like the beginning is so funny and kind of so ridiculous where they're each trying to get the ugliest girl and like how much they're like acting and stuff like that. And like I mean, that's how he gets um Lily Taylor to begin with, is that he like pretends to know all about folk music and stuff like that. This is San Francisco after all, um, in the early sixties. So she's very, you know. Uh, with it and hip and um uh but then once she figures it out uh she's obviously pissed but then he kind of realizes that she's pretty great and he wants to go spend the evening with her and i was expecting the entire time especially because there's a part where one of the friends sees out the window the two he and her walking down the the street while they're doing something stupid getting tattoos i believe I was expecting there to be like a big blow up moment. Like, what are you doing? Like you ditched your boys for, and there isn't that it's just like, yeah, he recognizes that he was off with a girl and it was fine. Um, so it's, yeah, it's just a nice movie. Um, yeah. I'm glad you noted kind of the tragic turn towards the end. Cause I feel like a lot of movies set in the early sixties just have like a, a hint of like, and then things are going to get bad, but this movie like does the whole follow through. Yeah still kind of wraps it around and i thought a very emotionally satisfying yeah and that is that's the framing device of it because the beginning of the movie is you see post-war yeah post-war but after the vietnam war river phoenix looking haggard and sad and you know like and so then we flash back to the to beginning and it's you see how different he is and everything like that but but you know the bad the bad times are coming and stuff like that so i thought yeah i thought it was fantastic um i can't wait to watch it again and tell more people about it well, guys, we did it. We did, we it. did it. Hopefully next year we'll be talking about uh, in-person experiences. Yeah. I can't Hollywood wait to talk Thailand. about all the movies I didn't get to watch. <laughs> yeah, or of... all the ones I got shut out of in the standby <laughs> <laughs> I just can't wait to have some free chips and salsa at uh, Cabo Wabo again. Oh, man. I will uh, say <laughs> I did order some takeout to more closely simulate the experience. I'm like, I could eat food in my own house, or I could get some pupusas around the corner, so... Uh, yeah. Now that I made enchiladas. Okay. And watched. Were they as good as the enchiladas at Cabo Wabo Cantina? <laughs> I don't usually get the enchiladas, so I. Uh, okay. No. I'm sorry. I, I know I should have like played along with your. I did. I did not. Yes, and that did I. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, um, thank you guys for being here. Of course. Yeah, like I said, this is all of my favorite Always. Good you can um, find. I, I wrote about. Uh, most of the movies that I watched uh, at, at battleshipretention.com, I didn't uh, write anything about Scarecrow because it was like sort of crammed into the last minute and I already had a plan in place. So apologies. We already talked about Scarecrow. It wasn't Go part of my... the schedule. Exactly. Go uh, find my writings at battleshipretention.com. Uh, email me at david at battleshipretention.com. Follow me on Twitter at Davey Pretension. Uh, do you guys have anything to plug? Let's start with Kyle. Hi. Yeah, you can. Um, I'm senior editor of nerds.com. So I, 
edit and or write quite a bit over there. You can just go to Nerdist and read all that stuff. You can follow me on Twitter at Kyle D. Anderson. Um, if you like a lot of Japanese pop culture from the 70s, because that's what I've been tweeting about for the most part and watching for the most part. But uh, yeah. Uh, Julie. Yes. Yeah, so you can follow me on Twitter at says no underscore says that's S E S under wait S E S N O underscore S A Y S. Um, I also want to plug something that I plugged last time, but it's still relevant. Um, I'm involved with a nonprofit called vaccine fairy. Um, we are, we schedule vaccine appointments for people. Just like, give us your information, we'll make you an appointment. Um, there's a lot of people out there who want to get vaccinated, but they don't know how or when, or they don't have the time. So we're trying to spread the word. So if you are vaccinated, try to think if there's anyone in your life who isn't, and we can help them out. Um, they also just opened it up to kids ages 12 to 15, so we can help book for kids that age. So it is vaccinefairy.org. And Scott. Uh, I don't think I have anything to plug. Twitter at Rail of Tomorrow. Um, some letterboxed. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, thanks again for being here, everyone. Of course. Thank you, everyone at home for listening. And we'll get you next time. Bye. 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 She fucking said it. <laughs> <laughs> This program is a proud member of the Battleship Pretension Fleet.